Hello, everyone. Welcome to the State of the Ark podcast. My name is Mike Kaysen is uh, not with us today due to the pandemic that we're dealing with. We, of course, aren't going to meet up here in the studio to record, and he wanted to spare us all of his terrible internet connection and dropping in and out of the call. So uh, he won't be with us today. I'm sure that we'll discuss his feelings on the FF7 remake at some point in the future on a podcast. But I am joined by three guests, Night Sky Prince, Soldier First Class, and Pat Holloman. Um, why don't you guys introduce yourselves real quick? We'll start with you, Prince. Uh, let people know about your channel and what you do, and uh, we'll move down the line. Hello, everyone. For about three years, I've been making YouTube videos for a channel called The Night Sky Prince, um, having to deal with pretty much everything Final Fantasy and Square Enix. I make multiple videos per week just dissecting everything about the Final Fantasy series, uh, sometimes Kingdom Hearts, the Nier series, and everything that comes out of Square Enix. So um, kind of like one of those mega fan channels, I guess you can call me. Nice. Thanks. Uh, how about you, Soldier? Uh, I'm Soldier First Class on YouTube. Uh, I typically do the same things. Mine's more news about the franchise oriented, uh, but a lot of Final Fantasy, Square Enix, some near videos here and there, and just random videos that I like to do just for passion projects, but mostly Square Enix and Final Fantasy and mostly Final Fantasy VII. Yep. Uh, I was actually curious because I used to have, uh, I don't know when you decided on like the name of your channel and everything like that, but I have the Gmail address soldierfirstclass at gmail.com. Did you ever try to like create that as you, as, as an email address for your, for your channel? <laughs> you weren't able to, to get it. <laughs> actually, no, it's funny. I, I usually do like crazy combinations and stuff for my email. Uh, okay. Okay. So I don't ever do like the obvious stuff. Yeah, because I I must have I must have nailed down that email address. I don't even know, like more than a decade ago. It was a super long time ago, and I thought it was funny because I was like, I wonder if he tried to get uh, soldierfirstclass at gmail.com, and it's like, nope, that's that's mine forever, and it's a it's an email I don't even use. So <laughs> no, somebody did jack my Twitter name though, so I'm pretty upset about that. <laughs> oh, that sucks. Mine that sucks. too. I swear. Yeah, you gotta you gotta get it quick, uh, especially you know, these days. All right, Pat, how about you? Yeah, my name is uh, Pat Holloman. I am the author of the Reverse Design series, which is a set of six books that uh, reverse engineer everything that went into the design of classic games, uh, including Final Fantasy VII, which is why I'm here. Yep. And you can find uh, Pat... my work at uh, thegamedesignforum.com. I should probably, probably yeah, give out yeah, my plug that. actual website. Uh, Pat and I have done a couple of videos uh, together in collaboration on the channel. Um, most recent one was uh, on Final Fantasy VII, on some of the the deeper meaning, the themes, underlying themes of the game. We also did one on Xenogears, so good to have you back. Okay, so um, this, this podcast is 100% spoiling everything. <laughs> I want to say that right off the bat. We are not going to do like a spoiler-free section. I don't think it's possible considering what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about uh, a lot of the controversy surrounding the release of Final Fantasy VII Remake. We're going to be talking about uh, in-depth gameplay mechanics, uh, how things have been changed and or, or expanded on in the story. So this is your your warning that if you want to avoid spoilers just don't even watch the podcast at all go play the game come back uh and and uh watch it later so that serves as the warning okay guys i want to start uh 
by well let's let's actually start here how has the reaction or your reaction to what we got uh gelled with with your fans with people who are watching your channel uh so, let's start yeah we'll start with you i, I meant to say that. start with lightscapers <laughs> my bad um so i feel like it's about 70 30 for people who like it and people who dislike it mm. um if you were to break it down further there is a lot of people who are just plain indifferent or they want to see where it necessarily goes mm. um from from here on out for me personally i think i i really love the game but it just there were some of the directions that they that they took in the game that i'm not sure how i feel about and the ending itself, I definitely lean negative toward. But there's a lot of people who are quite positive on the way this thing ended. So Has that surprised you, that that reaction being more 70-30? Were you expecting it to be more split? I was expecting it to be very 50-50. Because I'm sure that there were some people who would love this, what's essentially, from what we can tell, multiverse theory uh, being implemented into Final Fantasy VII story. I thought for most people that would be jarring considering the themes that Final mm. Fantasy VII deals with. It seems to be more, and I don't mean to use this in a bad way because I love anime, but it's very anime-esque, but not like good anime, not like Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood type do, anime. Do you know how glad bad. I am to hear you use that term? Because <laughs> I have used the term, it's too anime or something like that. And, and I know that you understand what I mean by that, but I've had so many people get upset with me for right. using it like as a negative connotation you know in in that context but i'm so glad so no, glad it, that you it's more that. like the, the it's more like the <laughs> the the tropes and the bad type of storytelling that you would see not that anything is like it's it's a it's a genre so within right. that genre you have really great storytelling too we're not saying right. all anime is right the same it's, it's, right it's, it's more maybe like what we're sort of jump and say yeah maybe it's like post evangelion anime Yes, there you go. Right. Um, it, it tends to, the ending, the way I felt like, it tends to almost go into like the bad anime tropes. You know, like if you watch like a, a long running shonen anime, mm -hmm. like the multiverse stuff is like what they get into when they have absolutely nothing left and the power scaling is broken. Yes. And so they have, to, they have to go into multiverse theory and it's just like, it would have been better if you just ended it. And yes. then, like, even revisited at a later time when you had something that wasn't like multiple universes where we can offshoots uh, into various different um, scenarios, because it feels like you sort of undermine the story and you undermine your ending whenever you introduce all these possibilities. Mm. How about you, uh, Soldier First Class? What has the um, split been on your channel in terms of people liking or disliking the the controversy? I'd, I'd say it's pretty close to how Prince put it. It's probably about 70-30 because it feels mm -hmm. like, you know, for every every three comments that I get, there's one negative, but there's three positives on the ending itself. Mm -hmm. And it, it does. It feels like there's that 70-30 split that is just, it's indicating that the fans are seeing it as a positive. Yeah. Uh, and were you, how do you feel about the ending? Where do you lie on that? So personally, I I lean towards the negative on it. Um, as he put the multiverse thing, that's kind yeah. of typically something you see when the people have run out of ideas. Mm. And it, it tends to, like the whole fighting fate and the whole split timelines and the what ifs and stuff, 
you know, depending on how many games this goes, they're going to have to take at least some time to break that down and show us where that's going to fall into the story. Mm. And I have a hard time seeing where that's actually going to pan out because for me, it's like, so you have all these different quote unquote timelines or what ifs or whatever. And if these characters somehow find a way to live in the current timeline, it takes for me all the impact out of, like, okay, we saw Biggs lived in the end. That whole scene you spent making you feel bad for this character because he just died is gone. Yeah. And other things like the whole Zach living thing I felt was negative too because then you're saying, well, the whole reason Cloud is who he is, the event that caused the trauma that has set him up for this is now maybe possibly null and void. Like it just for me, it just doesn't feel like. Well, I guess it, I guess that depends move. on um, if if we're looking if we're really looking at multiple different or alternate yeah. timelines, right? So in the timeline where Zach is alive, Cloud in that timeline wouldn't have been right or become the same person. But this Cloud in this timeline that we're currently in, with all the other characters we just played the game through, Zach died in that one, but not yeah. in this other alternate one. And so does that foreshadow? that we're going to be bringing characters from one timeline into another speculation to be had at some other point. But uh, <laughs> it's, it, I I'm with you. It's, 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 it leaves you feeling confused, really I, confused about like, what are they doing with this? I think like the ultimate concern, at least for me is like, we end up with some situation where we have like two clouds and like two Tifas. Yes. <laughs> is that, is that going to happen? Is that, are they going there? I would oh. not be surprised. But oh, no. <laughs> before we jump into that, uh, Pat, um, any feelings that you've had on the ending, on the controversy? Where do you lie on all this? Yeah, I mean, so I probably am in the camp where most of the people that I talk to about Final Fantasy VII are hardcore original enthusiasts. Um, that's I wrote the book. Obviously, you don't buy a book about Final Fantasy VII um, unless you really, really appreciate what was going on. Um, so I think you know, my very niche audience uh, has seen the divergences as something that they're not really into. So I've, mm -hmm. I've seen more negative responses, not maybe not negative, but more skeptical. Like there, nobody is, I think, upset that, you know, people can like this. It's fine. There's no re wrong reason to like video games unless as long as you're not trolling people on the mm -hmm. Internet. Um, but, uh, you know, I think I think we. You know, I belong to a community that really appreciated very fine details about Final Fantasy VII um, and the way it was paced and everything. So um, even before we got to the ending, a lot of me and my friends, we, we saw, you know, like, oh, this is this. The pace is way slower. That's one of the things we like the best. I mean, I'm, I'm literally making a game with uh, a JRPG that, you know, takes as inspiration um, the pacing and, and characterization um, techniques of the Final Fantasy series. That's why I wrote my book series is to be able to make what they made in the way that they made it. Um, so, you know, those things we don't appreciate as much. Um, but also there were things that I think a lot of people who I work with or, or just am friends with and who appreciate the game like I do really liked. Everybody agreed the combat is excellent. Um, lots of people liked the expanded characterization of people like Jesse, for example. Mm. Um, they felt that the characters were still nailed. Uh, they felt that the world felt largely like the Midgard they remember, um, perhaps a bit bloated, 
Um, some of the you know NPCs walking around seem to be from a totally different game. Um, like <laughs> they were just cut and pasted from the Unity Asset Store, and somehow <laughs> their personalities were also cut and pasted from some kind of personality asset store. Um, but largely, you know, it, none of us expected the remake to be the game that we loved. Uh, and so we're always, we were always skeptical of it. And that's the skepticism was proved correct, even when we appreciated uh, some of the things that it did. So the ending, to, nobody liked the ending. I don't, I don't know anybody who was who a big, liked that, who that you've talked to who liked it. I want to dovetail uh, on, on a point right there about expectation. Um, and and dive a little bit more into why this has been controversial to begin with. Um, and that is because this was a game that was requested for decades. People wanted to see Final Fantasy VII remade on whatever current year's platform was for more than 20 years. And when they announced at E3 2015, they were remaking Final Fantasy VII. I can only speak for myself. I'll let you guys speak for yourselves as well. I did not expect that that meant that they were going to change the game. And I'm not just talking about story, because obviously that's where the, the, the majority of the controversy is, is with the ending and how that's going to affect it moving forward. But I mean, even just the gameplay design from like a structural baseline level, I did not expect that that's what they meant when they said they were remaking it. Because what remake meant to me at the time was Resident Evil 1 for the GameCube or Metal Gear Solid Twin Snakes remake for the GameCube or Final Fantasy 3 or 4 on the DS. That's what I thought remake meant. And I'll get into that a little bit more in a minute. But what what were your expectations and did you feel like those expectations were betrayed? And if so, uh, do you feel like Square Enix might have misled people with the marketing, with the fact that they used that term remake? And we'll get into a little bit about how maybe the term isn't relating to a remake of a video game, but a remaking of the timeline of Final Fantasy VII, like a narrative spin on the term, right? Um, so why don't we start with you, Prince? Uh, what do you feel about all that? So I have to say that I think after the compilation uh, with titles like Crisis Core and then the film Advent Children, I do think that there was a certain expectation because I remember during the, the development of 13, and uh, even Versus 13, when they were sort of setting that expectation uh, that this traditional ATB system was no longer going to work. And they wanted to capture, they even cited that Advent Children was a lot of the inspiration for um, mm. why they decided to switch to more action, fast-paced, heavy battles, which is sort of weird because it's a film. <laughs> but that's... <laughs> they wanted it to feel that right. incredible, um, yeah, visually. Right. And so I think I had that expectation. And after playing so many action RPGs, which this sort of uh, the industry has really gone ham on over, whether you're Western or a Japanese developer. Uh, but I think that expectation was already there for a lot of people. I think that mm. a lot of people wanted the traditional ATB system. I can totally see why they went with it. And I have to say, to it's been to a tremendous success that I think a lot of people who said that, I don't want to play Final Fantasy because it's turn-based, which, as we know, is 
you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But to them, it was a pretty huge deal. And it's why they were into titles like Crisis Core, Kingdom Hearts, and things like that. And with them like announcing today that the title has sold 3.5 million units in three days, they probably made the best decision. So going back to your question, I sort of had the expectation for the Switch and gameplay to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, the expansion of the story, whenever they said they were going to have to do this into uh, multiple episodes or parts or multi-game, which is probably the best way of describing it is multi-game. Um, that's where a lot of people got nervous. I thought it was a good thing. I still think that for the most part, barring how I feel about the ending in the new direction, I feel like it was a good thing because one of my biggest enjoyments about this game has been going deeper into those characters' backstories. But um, in that moment, um, I guess like the trailer says, I didn't really think about any of my concerns. I just tried to focus on the fact that it was actually finally happening. <laughs> I know, it's crazy, right? Like yeah. when you when you actually get past where uh, the demo left off and you're like, holy crap, this is this yeah, is a full game. It's here. I, I mean, the whole thing is... It was a weird feeling for sure. Yeah. I actually, I actually kept making that joke. I was like, "This game isn't going to feel real to us until we get past the demo." <laughs> yeah, seriously, seriously. And that second chapter too was a phenomenal chapter. I think it was actually one of my favorite chapters in the whole game. Mm. Because um, in the original, I think you just kind of like scurry away, and then you get cornered by the troops, and then you hop on the train. But in the remake, man, there was a lot of time to just take in like everything that just happened. And people like trying to get to work or trying to like, you see like people's like businesses and stuff like burning down. And it's a very surreal moment to take in. Um, So I really Mm. like that part. But okay. Uh, So Soldier First Class, um, were your expectations pretty similar in terms of, I mean, I know they changed over time, right? Because they kept doing interviews and saying, yeah, we're this, it's not going to be exactly the same. We're going to be expanding it a lot. It's only going to be Midgar. But I mean, like right around the time it was announced. Um, what did what did you expect to see at that time? So when it was first announced, um, like Prince said with the action titles, um, I, it kind of felt like there was no way they were going to make this turn-based. So I guess I really didn't expect it to go that direction. Um, but I think over the course of time, like with the different interviews and stuff, you know, and they said, this is going to be different, or this is going to be the same, or this is going to be expanded upon, I think at some point the whole multi-game structure felt right. Mm. And even though like at first I was kind of, you know, everybody that saw it at first was like, Oh, multiple games. That's kind of weird. But over time when you like, and now that we have the game too, it's like, that makes sense. So in that sense, I guess my expectation was a little bit higher or lower, I guess, where I wasn't sure what to expect at that point. And then I got pleasantly surprised. Mm. Um, and then, like, the combat system, I I typically am okay with, with action combat. I do like turn-based probably maybe a little bit more, depending on the game. But with the action combat this time around, I felt like they really nailed it. And mm-hmm. that actually blew my expectation out of the water. So, so you, liked the, you liked the combat more than you thought you would? I Oh, definitely. I, mm-hmm. I thought... Because a lot of action games tend to be just hit this button twice and then you know that's just the combat and this it felt a lot more deep and a lot more strategic when it came to like magic and stuff so i was really pleasantly surprised at how just how good the combat system ended up being Mm. so i guess you could say that i had like 
I had low expectations for some things and high expectations for others and some in the middle. And a lot of those got blown out of the water on all of them. So, so for the most part until the ending, you felt it was exceeding. Oh yeah. For 100%. For the first mm-hmm. 16 or 17 chapters, I felt like I was playing the greatest game of all time other than the, <laughs> other than the original, of course. Nice. Uh, okay. So, so you would, that's actually a good question. Um, I, I hadn't even thought of this, but so uh, you said aside from the original. So th- through that first 15, 16 chapters, did you feel like it was better than the original or or did you still have a, a reservation to go that far? You know, I don't ever want to say that it's better than the original because for me, I don't think the first time I played the original or the first time I actually beat the game, y- you never get that quite that feeling again. Yeah, it's hard to recapture that. Uh, yeah, it's hard to recapture that. And playing a game that I knew was a remake of that game, while I loved you know just about every minute of the remake, I don't think that it could ever replace it from a psychological level or from just a straight emotion level. I, I just don't think it could ever... I don't think any game will ever replace that, but I, I think that's just personal experience for me. Okay. Um, Pat? I don't know where your head was at in 2015 regarding Square Enix. <laughs> I would assume uh, you you probably yeah. I mean, like, go ahead. I hadn't I hadn't written my book yet. Um, I wrote oh, okay. that in 2016. So I guess I had started. Yeah, I'd, so I started both of them at the end, in summer of 20 the, the my my Half Life book and my Final Fantasy VII book in 2014 in summer and fall. Um, so I had started, but. Um, I really didn't pay much attention to the, the marketing because I, you know, game development is is crazy, um, especially big time, big budget, big series, you know, big IP game development is, is bananas. Yeah. Um, I work on indie game development now and, and mid market stuff, and uh, that is bananas. And you change your plans all the time. Oh, yeah. um, so this, when the spotlight's on, you forget it. I mean, you know, who knows what could go wrong. Um, but then when they announced that it was going to be three games, you know, I kind of spent from age nine when I played my first JRPG, Secret of Mana, until, you know, uh, 8.22 Eastern Standard Time uh, today, uh, <laughs> trying to understand what made Final Fantasy Seven or Final Fantasy and, and, and Squaresoft JRPGs what they are. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I spent a very long time. I went to Japan. I, I, I wrote books. I studied them. I tried to make them and all that sort of thing. Um, and one of the things that I realized and, and it's sort of the, the one of the overarching theses of my work as a scholar has been that um, JRPGs were a response, an artistic response to uh, games elsewhere. And, and not to go too deep in the weeds on this, but um, JRPGs responded to Western RPGs um, by essentially by getting shorter and more story oriented and more linear and more character driven. And they got rid of a lot of things like character classes um, for a reason. They wanted to be a very streamlined movie like experience. In fact, in the game design document for final fantasy four, Sakaguchi and um, the, I forget the other direct final fantasy four is Tokita, Takashi Tokita mm, wrote yeah. down that they wanted to make the player feel like a, a protagonist in the movie. Right. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so they had these really, Fast-paced, um, deeply emotional sort of roller coaster ride uh, games. Uh, as a result of that, um, and as soon as you, I heard you know three parts uh, or more, um, I knew that was out the window. Um, in terms of pacing, you, you mean, right? Right, because like you know, like 
you know, like how can you have someone feel like a movie protagonist if the arc doesn't end, um, which it can't um, and doesn't in this game, not really. Um, sort of ends on a high note. I mean, you can you could sort of have you know Star Wars, obviously, which is a very influential in the Final Fantasy series. You know, Biggs Wedge, all that stuff. Um, but at the same time, you know, like the, the Final Fantasy VII Part re- Remake Part One, or I don't I don't even know what they want they call it in their marketing materials, um, does not really conclude any arcs uh, at all, any of them, and it just asks a bunch of questions. And there's a there was a, um, a Roger Ebert. Uh, comment on um, uh, Harry Potter, and I think, or someone on his site, I don't know if he was alive at the time, but uh, someone on his site said, you, what you don't want to have for, you know, Deathly Hollows part one and two is a one movie that's all set up and one movie that's all payoff. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. So if you're, you want to make a, you know, the player of your, of your game of a final fantasy game, feel like a movie protagonist, uh, you, you run, you're going to really skirt that problem if you break your game up into three parts. Uh, and so I thought that was going to happen right away. Uh, as soon as they said three parts, I was like, well, it can't be the JRPGs that it used to be. There's no movie protagonist flow in this. It's going to be something else. It's going to be maybe like The Witcher or Skyrim or something like that. Maybe they've seen the success of those games and they decided to go that route, or they've decided that, you know, it's just too expensive. Um, Final Fantasy VII was one of the most expensive games of all time when it was made, and uh, prices have only gone up. And the credit market in Japan is not what it is here. It's tough to get massive, massive funding over there. You know, you, you notice that they don't really have super huge AAA spectacle, Witcher 3, Uncharted 3, um, you know, uh, Dragon Age games over there. Um, they, they tend to go a little bit smaller than that. And one of the reasons is credit. Um, and just, you know, just having that, having the ability to fund finance those things. So I didn't think it would be possible to relive Final Fantasy in an artistic perspective, just like Soldier said. Um, but also I thought that it was not going to be artistically possible um, because of you know financial constraints, technological constraints, and just the shifting of the market. Final Fantasy VII became the most idiosyncratic, was, was the most famous RPG of uh, its time at the moment where J- Japanese RPGs were the most different from Western RPGs. Uh, I knew that was not going to happen again, right? That was a spectacular coincidence, which is why so many people own Final Fantasy VII and maybe never owned another RPG until Skyrim, right? You know, 15 years later. I knew that was going to happen again, and, and it didn't. So I was not shocked or surprised. Okay. There's there's a lot of things that you said that I wanted to get into and unpack, but I, I don't want to like turn this There's into always a, a lot of things that I said. <laughs> a freaking three hour conversation. But one thing I want to mention in terms of uh, turning it into multiple parts and just the philosophy of Square in general having changed since Sakaguchi left the company in 2003, um, he was always adamant about not having direct sequels, right? And it's what's been interesting to me is like almost the minute he walked out the door they tried to make a tie between Final Fantasy X-2 and Final Fantasy VII. They started the Final Fantasy VII compilation project. And so, like, that whole mentality of just, like, the company's philosophy or approach has totally changed from when he was an executive, you know, uh, at Squaresoft. So, to an extent, it's definitely... I, I would say it was not wise on my behalf or anyone else's to expect that they would kind of go backwards 
to try to recapture the game as it was as much as try to bring it into the future. And that's what I want to talk about next in terms of like the purpose of remakes. Like why do we remake games? Why do they? I don't I don't make games, but why do what is the purpose of remaking a game at all? And what do you guys consider to be like what is your definition, I guess, for remake? Because I've been seeing so many people disagreeing just on like what a remake is at all. Right? I've seen some people trying to use the the generic dictionary definition where it's like to uh essentially rebuild something again or differently and like leave it at that. And, and it's like the broadest possible way of like describing what a video game remake is. Because if if we're just talking about you just make something again but differently, does that mean we can produce just cause five but put cloud strife as the main character and call that final fantasy 7 remake obviously not like you have to have some level of faithfulness to the original source material but where is that line for you personally um i i guess i can start off on this um for me the definition that i have found that i guess i felt i always understood to be the video game industry's definition of what a remake is um is the following a video game remake is a video game closely adapted from an earlier title usually for the purpose of modernizing a game for newer hardware and contemporary audiences typically a remake of such game software shares essentially the same title fundamental gameplay concepts and core story elements of the original game a remake offers a newer interpretation of an older work characterized, and this is the important part for me, by updated or changed assets. A remake typically maintains the same story, genre, and fundamental gameplay ideas of the original work. The intent of a remake is usually to take an older game that has become outdated and update it for a new platform and audience. So when I read that, it was like, yeah, that's always been my understanding of it, right? It's it's not a remaster which people people have been coming at me because uh you know i expected something a little more faithful to the original game than what we got and they say and and their immediate counter rebuttal is oh you just expected a one-for-one -one recreation with updated graphics well woohoo they told you they weren't going to do that it's like no no <laughs> obviously a remake is more open than making a one-for-one -one recreation however the, the video games that I've played as remakes that I really, really enjoyed were, let's just stick to the same series, Final Fantasy 3 and Final Fantasy 4 DS, right? Th those were not exactly one-for-one -one recreations. Um, I, I especially love in Final Fantasy 4 DS the scene where Cecil and uh, Kane like actually like head out on the journey at the beginning and you have that uh, that um, the camera sort of like doing reverse shots as they walk down the hallways toward each other and they sort of do their bro fist like let's do this moment and the the entire script is essentially rewritten to sound very like almost Elizabethan age like Shakespearean almost and I love that language so I was way into that right so it's not a one for one recreation there are quality of life updates there are all kinds of different things that were in there that were not in the original that's what I consider to be like the spirit of what a remake should be going for, right? Because there are people who don't have a Super Nintendo 
or whatever. I don't know. Final Fantasy IV has been released so many times on so many platforms. There's so many chances people have had to play that. But my point is, if we're not talking about that, just we want to remake something really old and obscure. A lot of people aren't going to have access to that game anymore. So, or let's say even in FF7's case, people are kids who maybe weren't born yet when that game came out, right? They look at the graphics and the little Lego men on the screen and they're like, this looks old. I don't want to play this. So to me, I feel old. (laughs) To me, a remake is about retelling that story for a new audience. That's one part of it. The second part of it is hopefully to create a definitive edition of that game, right? Because there were going to be problems with the original. No game is perfect. And I feel like Final Fantasy IV in a lot of ways did that. It's sort of like made Final Fantasy IV better, especially the SNES release versus the Super Famicom version. Because in Japan, they had a, a, a better difficulty level and they totally like neutered it when they brought it to the West. And they, uh, the translation is funky because of all of the Nintendo censorship policies with we can't have anything judeo-christian in terms of iconography or symbolism in this we have to change the spell name of holy into white and just a bunch of other things like that right so the ds version like reinstills a lot of that is closer in spirit i feel to what the original intention was and but is still a faithful retelling of that story and to me that that is the definitive version a lot of people will argue that the psp uh, complete collection version is the definitive version, and I wouldn't even argue with that. I think both of them are improved from the SNES version that we got. So that's what I, I guess, look for in a remake. Now we'll we'll get into the fact that that it's debatable whether FF7R is a remake at all here in a minute, <laughs> but I want to get your guys's ideas on that. Uh, what what do you see as a remake? Um, how I guess broad or open is your definition in that sense let's start with uh prince again um so whenever you think about something like crash bandicoot or the spyro remakes those are actually marketed as remasters which i found very weird because for me at least the definition or the traditional definition of remake would be to take a new engine and have new assets and a remaster would be to port the new engine to um, the latest hardware, and to have the same assets, maybe with better textures, mm-hmm. um, and then that would be it. Um, but then we also have remakes like Resident Evil 2 Remake, and that mm-hmm. game has been to, to a very, very um, large audience, a very successful remake. Um, I yeah. just played it recently, and that game is phenomenal. Um, although it's not even technically, it's survival horror, but it's not technically gameplay-wise, um, in the same genre, well, because we don't have tank controls anymore either, but it's an over-the-head uh, third-person shooter. And yeah, so, like the, like the, I don't mean to interrupt, but just to insert real quick, they yeah. they have adopted more of the gameplay style that they've embraced since Resident Evil Four, versus right. actually going back to the fixed camera, tanky controls, right? <laughs> right. And, and because of that, gameplay-wise, there's an entire fundamental shift in that game from the original. Um, and it works out sometimes and it doesn't work out other times. And so remake, while we do have one idea of it and we think we have another idea of remaster, 
I think that a lot of the times that it just simply comes down to marketing and what's going to be the best way to market the game. And uh, sometimes that's remaster, like the Crash and the Spyro, uh, which technically are remakes again. Yeah. Um, and that's to show that, hey, nothing's really changed. It's the same game again, just in HD. Um, and then sometimes putting that word remake on there is just a really good marketing move. Sure. And so um, while I, I agree with you in some sense that this is really more like a comic book style remake than it is like a remake remake. It's more of a reboot or reimagining. Mm -hmm. um, then the remake word on there is, let's just be honest, it's, it's for marketing purposes. And well, it's yeah. It's a literal remake in the traditional sense. I mean, don't you think that if they had announced at E3 2015, they came on the stage, they showed that presentation, and they're like, we're doing an alternate story with the same <laughs> characters. Do you think they would have had even a chance in hell of selling the same number of units if that nope. had been the message from the start? Nope, nope. And in fact, um, there was an interview where they were discussing, like, should we put the word remake in there? And at the last minute, they were like, yeah, let's put the word remake in there because we don't want any misconception about what this is. Um, I think everyone's seen that famous um, game trailers reaction where everyone was mm -hmm. flipping out. Losing it, yeah. Yeah, and, and in fact, if you watch all the reactions, the moment everyone flips out is when they see that word. Remake, that's, yes. Yeah, that's when the crowd just goes bonkers, right? I, I love watching those videos of people reacting because most of them are all the way up to the end, still doubting whether or not this is a remake of Final Fantasy. They're, no, this is a movie. No, this is something else. No, this is this is this can't be because they had been like led on for so long. I think it was just the previous December at mm. the the PlayStation Experience where <laughs> everyone got stoked because oh my gosh, are they announcing Final Fantasy VII remake? And it's like no, it's it's we're we're porting the the Steam version to PS4 or whatever it was, and everyone's like, ah, oh, dang it, like. Every time I get excited and again and again, it's like everyone felt so led on that they almost didn't want to believe what they were seeing. Yeah. And then when that word came on screen, that's what everyone got excited about. And so I think at least as far as I'm concerned and maybe a lot of people who think like me, that's where the controversy is because they rode the success train of having people believe they were remaking the original Final Fantasy VII, all the way, all the way till now. They released it, and I think a lot of people expected that. And again, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. We'll jump into the ending <laughs> and what that means in a minute. But right. um, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the, the difference. And, and I think the easiest way to really illustrate what the difference between an, a remaster and a remake is, is you have Shadow of the Colossus, the PS2 original. It was remastered for PlayStation 3, it was remade for PlayStation 4. Even though it is pretty close to an exact one-for-one -one recreation, it's a remake because it was built in a new engine from the ground up. And if you go to like PlayStation's official page for Shadow of the Colossus, that's what it says right there, rebuilt from the ground up by Blue Whoever, Blue Moon Studios or whatever they're called. That's the fundamental difference. But I'm also trying to... Um, as a caveat to that, say there is room for expansion. Like it doesn't have to be a one for one creation. That's one way to do it, but right. there is room for expansion. There is room for adding things. There is room for improving in certain ways, right. but where the line is drawn in terms of like, are we actually, 
are we actually diving into what made the original game what it is? It's the way it was designed. It's fundamental spirit or essence. And are we trying to bring that into this? Or is our intent and purpose from the beginning to free ourselves and do something totally different? And can we call that a remake or not? Right. And so change to me is a great thing. And for the most part with this game, um, for example, I thought it was cool how they added a lot of characters from like Nojima's side story mm-hmm. into the game. thought that was, that was actually pretty isn't, cool. Isn't Leslie one of those characters? Yeah, Leslie Kyle, and then you have Kyrie yeah. as well. And that, yeah. was, that was pretty cool stuff. Like that's, that's the type of stuff that I like in remakes. Mm. Um, but I do think that there is a sort of core essence to Final Fantasy VII. And you have to stay within that essence. Otherwise, I think that you're better off creating Final Fantasy 16 instead. Sure. Why even bother to remake Final Fantasy 7 is my main contention. So how successful do you feel that they were? Um, Overall. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry if that puts a lot of pressure on you. Need <laughs> um, Reduce a fraction of 16 over 18. <laughs> and that- <laughs> And that's pretty much uh, that's pretty much how successful that they were. Um, a lot of the changes, um, some stuff in the original was better, some stuff in the remake was better, but I don't think it truly became jarring to me about the changes when um, the moment when I was supposed to see the blood trail, it was like some kind oh, of oh man, <laughs> it was. I remember kind of- I remember the video you made on that though, where where in the in the ESRB rating they they didn't have blood. And that, you were speculating that 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 scene was going to go be, for that reason, and I was like, "Oh man, I'm, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's gone." Yeah. Because on the on the PlayStation One, the representation of blood is not nearly as graphic sure. as it would be on the PlayStation Four. Sure. And I feel like running that through a modern lens, that much blood on the floor, and you found bodies too, and they were described to be like mangled, basically. And mm. like you're like, what kind of creature did this? That's what the text says in the game. Yeah. And then for it to just be like Genova's, it's supposed to be like Genova's blood, I think, but it's like a purple glowing goop. Yeah, in, in the <laughs> and, version. Uh, and that was chapter 17. And that was sort of where I was like, okay, I get it. You guys couldn't do this because that would shift it from a T-rated game to an M-rated game. I, I get the, 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 the economics behind it, but it, it was at that point I started to feel a little bit woozy. And then I think... After that fight with Motorball, that's when I started to be like, oh, no. <laughs> so, for- <laughs> And it's just it's so it's so weird, too, because for someone like me, I feel like they were just knocking it out of the park. And then they got right to that ending. And I was just like, why would you go and just kind of toss it all away at that point when you had put down so much goodwill in the first 16 chapters. Now, now all this being said, uh, you're still excited for part two, right? For the next one? I'm still excited for part two because I love high quality action RPGs. Sure, (laughs) sure. But as as a continuation of Final Fantasy VII, I'm nervous. Okay. Okay. Um, Let's move on to Soldier here. I know we went over like a ton of stuff there. Um, (laughs) What what are your feelings on uh, what defines a remake to you how successful this was at capturing that original essence or or spirit. What are your feelings on that? So for me, a remake is similar to, and I kind of hate the term remake because it's so broad and it's hard to capture 
what exactly is it? What it, does it mean? Is it okay to change this? Is it okay to change that? Like for me, remake is I'm going to build this from the ground up. It's going to capture the same overall essence of what the original had with some quality of life improvements, um, maybe some plot hole fixing, or in the case of seven remake, where we had all these compilation materials, you know, books, movies, uh, spinoff games, being able to tie those together in a cohesive way. And to me, that's what a remake is. You're remaking that story to be better and to still capture the essence of what made the original work great. Hmm. And I guess in some aspects, the remake did a really, really good job of that. Like with the characters, I think the characters are spot on. I think they're perfect. Uh, I've probably mentioned before that I think they take their personalities and they, they boost them up to 11. And I remember those characters being that great, even though they didn't have the same kind of context they do in the remake. And I loved, I really loved that. Um, the remade music was really great, but then it got towards chapter 17 and some of the changes were like, I understood because of ratings and stuff like that. And then you get into the ending and it's like possible time travel and fighting fate and plot ghosts and all these kind of things that were just, I thought it kind of took away from the essence mm. of the original in a way. And that, that's where, like I said, you know, chapter one through 16 and even a lot of 17 for me, that's where it started to take the turn was at the, at the middle, probably middle point of chapter 17 was where I really started to see that, okay, maybe this isn't what we were led to believe a little bit. So I want to just insert real quick that we're going to talk about authorial intention here in a minute, right? And how much that matters to this. Uh, Because I I just, I anticipate uh, what people are going to be firing (laughs) in the comments section. Um, So we'll talk about it in a minute, but I just want to get Pat's thoughts real quick on this too, if you have anything to add. So yeah, um, I mean, I I divide remakes into two real categories. One is um, uh, you can have a remake, which is maybe three. Um, We'll say, I don't know if one of those really a remake or not. But the the two primary kinds of remakes that we see in modern media are Generally, you have your remakes, which are like George Lucas remaking Star Wars in 1997. Not Mm. what happened a million times after that, where he changed it a million times, but the special editions when they first came out in theaters. Mm. Um, That's a technological update. This is the kind of thing that I think people were originally expecting from Final Fantasy VII, which is technology has moved on in a major way, and uh, we want to see you know, what the director of this game probably imagined when they were originally making it, if they could clean up everything that they wanted to clean up. Um, This has happened to a lot of films um, and a lot of games. We've seen a lot of that. Um, And you have a remake um, in a more ancient sense, which is uh, even Homer's Odyssey and Iliad are essentially remakes. Um, They take a tradition of heroic poetry, which was very rah, 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 um, and they recast it in the light of was this really so great? Uh, do we really love these brutal killers and the you know tumultuous society that they lived in? Um, or do we want something a little more sophisticated and, and domestic now? Um, and so re-examining your own myths, sometimes hundreds of years later, you actually most um, gives a new audience a way to recontextualize 
some uh, artifact of their culture um, in their own lives. Mm. And you can't really do that about Final Fantasy VII uh, yet, right? Um, it's too soon, yeah. But I think I think that you could have done something where you have a commentary. I mean, the, the purpose of the ancient style remake, which has been going on forever, is to have a commentary about what the original meant, but maybe was unable to say or was only beginning to say, um, you know, where these cultural ideas came from. And I think that Final Fantasy, the remake might have done that in maybe the worst possible way, in the sense that, um, you know, the whole Arbiters of Fate thing saying like, well, you know, the, you have to have known what happened in the original game for this part of this ending to make sense. It's like it, it requires an intimate familiarity with the original right. game to even understand what why anything they're saying is important there at the end right and that can be done well and it can be done poorly it can be done well in that everyone who heard homer's odyssey which was actually not written by one man but by a collection of people um they knew the stories about those heroes and then when they heard the poets tell them the poets would be offering critiques of those heroes and so um, that difference, you know, then knowing the source material, that difference was really meaningful. Um, but in this case, I don't think that they're offering a critique, a loving critique of Final Fantasy VII, as much as they're offering critique of the audience and the pressure that they've been put under to remake this game. Um, and that can be a bit on the nose. Um, so that... I don't know how I feel about it. I don't know where they're going to go with it. Maybe they maybe they just threw us that curveball just to keep us interested and, and, and it won't amount to anything. It's not going to, you know, maybe they just feel stifled creatively. I don't know. But I think I was probably more expecting a technological remake and that, and, you know, mostly, but that, that would broaden things out to be technological, but also um, technique, right? The, the techniques of RPG have developed the patience of the audience has expanded. Um, people will sit through 100 hours of RPG. That was not true in 1996. Um, it just wasn't. Uh, you know, PC RPG players would, but the broad audience was just not going to sit through a game that long. Now, you know, the standards have changed. People expect 100 hours of content for $60, um, which is an absurd notion. But um, nevertheless, you know, as, as audiences have changed and what audience expectations have changed, I thought it would be possible for the kind of remake where it's just an expansion um, to be okay. But I feel like maybe Squaresoft has, or Square Enix, excuse me, has a one foot in each, in each pond, so to speak, in that they want to offer a commentary on, on what Final Fantasy VII meant or, or implied or, or what, was, what it was like to create that game. Um, but maybe they said it in a ham-fisted way. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that to me is not problematic in the sense of that there is a monoculture which says think which one thing is right and one thing is wrong, but uh, a problem for everyone in that they're going to have to, they've they've dug themselves into a pit. They're going to have to dig themselves out of it in a satisfying way that's still recognizably Final Fantasy VII, and I do not envy them that task. Sure. So uh, I think I want to move off a little bit from the controversy, but I want to just go around one more time. And, and ask these these couple questions. I, I want to be careful about the wording, too. I don't want to... I do not think that this game was falsely advertised. But I do think it was misleading, 
it was a bit deceptive. And that will also depend on how closely you were following it and like which interviews you read or did not read. Because it was like in one interview, Nomura would say, um, you can see this as a reimagining. He uses the word reimagining, right? He doesn't use the word remake. He's, we're, we're really like doing something different with this. But then in especially a couple of those like video interviews that they did right before the game came out that just kind of led up to the release, they talked about how faithful or how hard they tried to be faithful to the original and how they felt like it was going to please everyone. And, and ha- knowing that they said those words and then what happens at the end, I struggle to understand that they couldn't have at least had some inkling of the controversy that this would create. And so like, there's part of me that feels like I was misled uh, and that they tried to keep, they, they would, they would be forthcoming and saying like, this is not going to be a one for one recreation. Right. So you can't expect that. But I think they also really tried to make it clear, like, Hey, we have people on our team who grew up playing this game. And their their love for this is is like pushing them into trying to really capture what that original was all about. So they they tried to continue making that point at the same time. And again, I think uh, uh, Jim Sterling made a video about this this week. I don't know if you guys all saw that. Um, where his essential point was whether or not you're going to feel misled depends on whether or not you like the twist at the end or not. And there's certainly a lot of truth to that. If you enjoyed it, then it's like, oh, that was awesome. And it was clever. And I didn't see it coming. And I was surprised by it. Right. And and I liked it. But those people who were not expecting that coming and realized that they had kind of kept this element of it hidden in how they talked about it for the purpose of it being surprising. Right. They wanted to surprise the audience. I guess I'm being really long winded. I'll just get to the point. How misled did you feel by this? if at all um and how i guess i already asked that but how does that affect i guess your excitement about the project moving forward i i might have already asked that already but i'm I'm just curious to see where you guys are at so in my review i gave the game a nine out of ten because it was one of the most enjoyable action rpgs i probably played since whenever I play it near Automata, because that game was also phenomenal. Mm. Um, it was a really, really, really good game um, in every aspect. And like Jim Sterling was saying, it really just depends on how you feel when you get to the end and what that does to you. Um, for me personally, though, I wouldn't say that I was misled because I did sort of go in with that notion that they could literally change anything I just didn't know that they would introduce something that was so fundamentally jarring to me mm-hmm. that sort of off put me or made me in a place where I wouldn't know how to feel about the story going forward. I uh, Actually, 10 months ago, I had made a video titled Why Sephiroth Will Be the, the Final Boss with the First Game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and people were like, that's stupid. Why would you? Why would you? <laughs> and it turned out, I, I'm sure that that video is going to like pick up in like a little bit. Now that people are completing the game, that video sure. is probably going to pick up some views just because. A bit. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was thinking about it and I was like, they're showing off way too much Sephiroth way too early. He's on like the deluxe edition and everything. So there is no way that they're going to put him in there and then him not play a major role in terms of encounter. So 
I can't say that I was misled because I knew it was coming before. <laughs> before you called it, it. you called yeah, it, yeah. called it, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I, I wasn't really misled. I I knew it. What where I feel not necessarily misled, but you can say that there is salt in my mouth over it was basically just creating possibly another multiverse or timeline in a story where that's almost contradictory to the themes, especially the concepts of like destiny and fate, where I feel like Gaia in the original Final Fantasy VII was not about destiny or fate. It was a very cruel world in a way. Well, a lot of it's about acceptance. I mean, yeah. the original game's theme's about acceptance of your mortality, about the death of loved ones, people who oh. are close to you, learning right. to accept Almost the will of the planet. Of fate, if, if anything, right? Sure, yeah. Right, and so for this to be like defying fate, and for them to even use those words and to try to like bring me back into like Final <laughs> Fantasy 13, <laughs> um, that was pretty alarming for me. And so I understand that they had to, in order to sell this as a full game, I understand that they had to come up with something in order to make this feel like a full game's conclusion. And that's where I arrived at, oh man, they have to make us fight Sephiroth because that they're going to think that that's the only thing that they could do in yeah. order to round this off. To make it feel like a final boss of a complete game. Right. And then, um, and it, it does feel like a complete game to me. Uh, I mm. think I finished my playthrough at close to 40 hours. So I don't think in terms of playtime, there's any arguing that this is a fraction of a game. Yeah, I just think that there are so many different things that they could have done that would have been congruent with the themes of Final Fantasy VII that didn't necessarily um, cause such a jarring shift. Okay, so one thing I want to do... Well, this is oh, I okay, go, go ahead, Pat. Go I, ahead, Pat. I, I want to talk about what he talked about and go out of order here. Yeah, go for it. So, like, yeah, so he talks about... Um, Prince talks about con you being congruent with the themes of Final Fantasy VII, right? Um, what I was talking about, you know, um, when I was... Uh, blowing a bunch of bullshit about ancient poetry. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry for your, all your audience. There's like four of us out there who are happy about that. But um, what those ancient writers did was they took a, a, a source material and they made something that was more like itself, right? They made the Odyssey or Paradise Lost or any of those things, which are remake, you know, essentially remakes of existing material from ancient sources. Um, they wanted to make a version that was like relevant to the modern, their, whoever was modern for them, but without destroying the original they wanted to take the the underlying you know little glimmers of, of meaning in these folk tales and and develop them into something that was meaningful for everybody so that everyone could see you know uh the story of achilles or the story of troy or the story of odysseus or the story of adam and eve in a way that was as meaningful to everyone as it was to the poet who sees all these things in texts all the time so plenty of people saw a lot in final fantasy 7 there was a lot there um, and I think they, if they had, you know, really accomplished a masterpiece, they would have brought all of the themes that we looked deeply into Final Fantasy VII to see, and they would have made them accessible to everyone. And that would have been the great triumph. I mean, maybe not everyone. Not, there's no one's gonna, you know, that the the next uh, book that you know everyone understands completely will be the first book that everyone understands completely. But had they been able to broaden that audience using all their new, new techniques and time and budget. Um, 
And I think to some degree they did, but if had they been able to just focus on that, I think they really would have accomplished something which was congruent with Final Fantasy VII. They would have made a Final Fantasy VII that was more Final Fantasy VII than the original. Right. That was possible. I, I, and I feel like they came pretty close to accomplishing that. And then you just get into that Arbiters of Fate stuff and you get into chapter 17 and 18. And I feel like any chance that they had of doing that or, or rounding the game out with that as an ending to drive home that this is FF7, other than having a semi-nostalgic uh, moment when I first watched Advent Children and got to see Cloud and Sephiroth fight, <laughs> other than that, um, I don't feel like they, they rounded it off in that way. And it's just, it's such a shame to me because I feel like in those first 16 chapters, and again, I love the game, gave it a nine out of 10. And that was primarily on those 16 chapters that I played leading sure. up to sure. where we got. And yeah. So uh, before we change gears here real quick, we'll get, we'll pass it over to Soldier if you have anything to add on this point. But I do want to, this has begun, and this is typical of me because I'm leading the discussion and I'm asking a lot of pointed questions that... <laughs> have made this conversation lean a little negative. So I want to, I want to look at some positive things in a second, but I want to pass it to you real quick just to see if you have anything to add on this topic. So I, w I don't really feel like until chapter 18 that I was really misled in any way. I kind of knew from just researching the game and looking at all the interviews and the conflicting reports and stuff on what this game was that, uh, you know, I kind of went into it with an open mind per se. And, I don't really feel like I was misled until it got to the point in chapter 18 where they're like, this is possibly actually a sequel mm. to, to the game instead of actually being the game. Yeah. And, and I feel like, so, you know, they wanted to make changes. They wanted to make story changes. They wanted to change the combat. They wanted to do all this stuff different or new or whatever while capturing the essence. But I don't feel like they needed the fate ghost for that. They, it, it, to me, it felt like something that they kind of, they wanted to be all philosophical and metaphorical and get you thinking. But at the same time, it's like, you know, if you want to change something, there were changes that you made that you didn't even use the fate ghost for. Yeah. <laughs> so, so why do some changes need the fate ghost and others don't just change the game? Don't over convolute the change or then you're putting too much emphasis on it and saying, well, and a lot of people are theorizing that the fate ghosts are actually us trying to keep the right. game like a meta, it. a meta yeah. narrative yeah. there, right? Yeah. A meta narrative. <laughs> and if that is true, then it feels like you spent all this time respecting the original game and respecting the fans and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden you're saying, well, we're the evil people trying to, pressure you, you yeah. pressure you and i don't necessarily feel that way 100 but it does when you get into chapter 18 it does kind of feel like they shoehorned the the watchman of fate in there in the last like 45 minutes of the game they tried to explain everything about him and then they tried to explain you know sephiroth and stuff like that and it just felt very very forced mm. and i felt like the ending could have been like with Biggs living, it took all the impact out of his death and maybe Zach's alive. Like what's that about? So for me, like you said earlier, it does feel like you need to play the original game to understand what's going on. And I do want to go back to an interview that Nomura did recently 
okay. where, he, where he said that originally when he started the remake project in his own mind, it was going to be a sequel in the compilation. And I think in chapter 18, he quickly threw that in there and made this a sequel. I, mm-hmm. I don't think that it necessarily takes on the characteristics of a remake anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I would say to, to me, it's, it's pretty clear, especially with some of the lines that like Sephiroth says, he says like, um, what lies ahead? What is it that he says? What lies ahead has, does not, does not exist. yet exist. That's it. Yeah. And Aerith makes a, a, a couple of, uh, she has, she has a couple of lines that, um, insinuate that and then like the the actual title on the end that says the unknown journey will continue i think it's fairly clear that this is to me that moving forward this is not going to follow the original's story it's not bound to that anymore um and that they want to sort of rewrite a new story within the same universe so to speak and whether or not you're into that uh i, I, I mean i some people are really into it. You guys are saying it's like 70, 30. So like there are a lot of people who are stoked and like they can't wait to see what comes next. And they're, they're excited about it. And for all those people, like fantastic, man, I I'm genuinely happy for you. You're looking forward to a lot of cool stuff coming up. So Um, I think I would be excited for that if I was getting that and sort of the remake of the original. (laughs) If they could just do both things. (laughs) Yeah. If they could somehow do both things, uh, I would be very pleased, right? It won't be too late for them to make a mod after they've already created all the I'm sure somebody will. That is just the game. Yeah. Yeah. It's just Final Fantasy VII with HD. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure somebody will do that. That's true. Okay. I I do want to say, though, that if they had made, like, an effort to like Roche Roche was in the game, a chapter. Oh, and I yeah. thought he had a lot of potential for me. I actually made a theory that countered Prince's theory that I thought Roche would actually come back with Genova cell implants mm. from Hojo. Once he got done in chapter four, he was like going to go back to the lab or whatever. And I thought that would have been a better ending and would still allow you to transition into the next part on a high note but still say, well, we don't know what's going to happen. And is that for the player or is that for the characters? Well, like what unknown journey are they talking about? You know, yeah, that, that character was strangely underutilized. It was like his existence in the game was to be the boss fight of chapter three, but like <laughs> they didn't actually do anything with him later. And it's like, that could, I think in some alternate universe that maybe Square made him the final boss of the game. That could have been an interesting choice, right? Like actually introducing a new character to serve as that guy who's like defying you the whole way and not have to essentially like shoehorn Sephiroth into this as much as they did. But let's not do that right now. I want to really quickly just go through and have everyone tell me what you think they did like the best. What did they get the most right? in the remake what do you feel that they they did the best Mm, combat characters and music above everything else the combat square enix has had very 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 hit and miss games in terms of action combat um kingdom hearts a lot of kingdom hearts games very well balanced battle system a lot of them not so much uh with the final fantasy series in particular 15 has had quite a number of detractors let's say uh when it comes to its battle system on whether you can just hold circle and hold square and pretty much do all your fighting magic is sort of basically optional in that game and you don't even have a 
very big diversity of spells and also that the game is fairly easy. Um, and this game, you actually see the game over screen quite a couple of times, which in a modern square game is like, whoa. You don't uh, see that very often. <laughs> yeah, you don't see that very often. So they absolutely nailed um, the difficulty, uh, the gameplay balancing. Uh, combat has so much strategy to it. I was actually very surprised how efficient you could actually play if you want to sit and like put in the time and learn uh, the mechanics of each fight and like what you can do with it. So in, in terms of battles, I think I may actually find myself more engaged with this new system than the old game. Mm. I just, there's like a sense of pure joy whenever I have a good boss fight in this game. And that's one thing that I think they nailed. Uh, music, uh, I think that this is some of uh, Hamuzu's best work. Uh, Uematsu for what he returned for, which I, I think is only the, the main theme, which is Hollow, also a great song. Um, a lot of the new music especially is just phenomenal. Uh, and the way that it's uh, dynamic music so that it's it feels like someone's constantly orchestrating each moment. That yeah. stuff is awesome. Uh, and then the characters too. Cloud feels like Cloud and not emo Kingdom Hearts Cloud. Mm -hmm. uh, Tifa, Tifa actually got a really good expansion to me. I feel like I really understand her in a way that I didn't from playing the original game, I feel like her voice acting also super phenomenal, mm -hmm. super phenomenal. Um, uh, yeah, the characters were so right. And so those three things to me just stand out the most. How about you soldier? What do you think they got right the most? So definitely the characters. Um, I do have to say that like Barrett, I think a lot of people were worried about how Barrett was going to sound translating from text to vocals. Mm -hmm. And John Eric Bentley knocked it out of the park. He's great, isn't he? He's awesome. He is fantastic. And he like, I have never felt like these characters have felt so alive and so real inside of a fantasy setting. And I think that's one of the hardest things to capture is, you know, with magic and swords and castles and all these different fantastical elements to make the characters inside of it still feel like real people that you can relate with. And I feel like that's something they did phenomenally in the remake. They they made like Cloud is he's this cocky, arrogant, you know, I'm only going to do this for money type of thing. And I think that just amplified his persona, you know, tenfold and just made him so great and so fun to watch on screen. And I feel like all the characters are like that. I think the only real character that I didn't have a love for was... I thought some of the dialogue of the uh, Shinra middle manager was a little iffy, but other than that, all the characters were just phenomenal. The combat system was great. I mean, I have played a few action games. I love God of war, um, stuff like that. And action RPGs are stuff that I've kind of gotten into lately. And I thought that they did a, a fantastic job of getting somebody that's not, you know, in that genre all the time into the genre and loving it. Mm. And I loved every minute of Final Fantasy VII Remake's combat. I think it's really deep. I think you actually have to pay attention to status effects, and it's not just hitting the square button. And bosses have different things that they do based on difficulty, which I really like. I think difficulty in this game actually set itself apart from a lot of its predecessors. Um, and the music's great, too. The music's phenomenal. The atmosphere, though, 
of each location I thought was captured perfectly. I think that's one of the things that I loved the most was that wall market felt like what wall market's supposed to feel like. Um, Sector five felt, you know, it had this atmosphere to it. And even Aerith's house just felt magical Mm. and just like it captured that essence and atmosphere of the original. And that's what I really, really loved about the game. Nice. How about you, Pat? Um, the characters were themselves. Uh, they ought to be. Kazushige Nojima wrote the majority of both scripts. Um, so, actually, in fact, a lot of what you are seeing in the game appears to be, uh, a lot of the expansion appears to be material that actually made it to the PlayStation discs, but was cut mm-hmm. um, not long before release. Um, this is something that we've known for a long time, that there was uh, unused material on the discs. But um, yeah. a lot of what uh, the characters are saying is essentially... Um, things that the Nujima wanted them to say um, when his first, you know, he he was brought in to write a new draft of the script after um, Kitase Sakaguchi and Nomura had worked on it, um, and so he, he, the expansions are, are right there of people that he wrote and that he wanted time to have give more dialogue. I mean, if you look at the difference between how much character dialogue there is in Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy VIII, Final Fantasy VIII was all Nojima. Um, he he was the originator of the idea. Lots of people sit down and. Uh, express their viewpoints in small rooms, right? Yeah, um, chat, chat it up. <laughs> yeah, right. There's there's a lot more of that now. It's not really in small rooms. That's not what Midgar is like. But, you know, people having a chance to just speak their mind about something less plot-related and it's not just the one playground scene. Um, so, you know, people are given more latitude and they sound like themselves and Nojima should be given credit. He, he did a good job the first time. He did a good job the second time. Mm-hmm. Um, combat system. Combat in Final Fantasy VII was not the point. Uh, they wanted to tell a story. They had only so much in the way of resources. They made combat blameless. Uh, and it was, it was hard at the right times, right? During certain emotional boss fights. Uh, they, they, they picked their spots well. It was Combat in Final Fantasy VII was perhaps, you best call it, judicious. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's fun. It's challenging. It's intellectually stimulating. Um, so kudos for that. Um, I am a disagreeer on the music because... Um, for me, Final Fantasy VII, of course, all about pacing, and I, I don't, I disagree with what they did to the pacing, but I knew it was going to happen, and if people like it, that's not a problem. But um, one of the key elements of the pacing was the way that the uh, late motif. Um, I don't want to sing it on your thing. That I, I don't know if what's the looking shot. Like da, da 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 da. Yeah, the main theme of the game. Um, apologies to everyone who had to hear that, <laughs> um, but that hook, the main late motif. Uh, is developed from uh, through a number of pieces in Midgar um, till you first hear it on the world map. So it starts off, um, you know, with uh, some harmonic uh, changes in on the train ride out of Sector, um, the first bombing run, and um, it, it plays in the in the, the track um, on that day uh, five years ago, um, and then they play it again in Under the Rotting Pizza, um, where it's still again I think I think it's diminished, but the harmonics are different. Um, so that when you finally get into the world map, that big open symphonic feel that they have for the main theme feels like you've been prepared for it really well. Um, and it gives you that sense of freedom when you in- inherit the whole world. Um, now that they're deploying that theme sort of willy-nilly just as you're doing side quests is a little strange to me. And I think takes away from um, Uematsu's really clever and, and controlled pacing of the music. Um, 
And while I admit that Hamauzu um, did a good job, I think, with some orchestrations, I think there are some that are really well done. Hamauzu has always been a great orchestrator. Um, his orchestrations of uh, um, uh, uh, Mitsuda are, are excellent as well. I re definitely recommend um, his, his piano arrangements of um, Sailing to the World, um, which is an obscure uh, Mitsuda track um, or album. But um, I, I think that, you know, he, he just used things probably because the producers told him you use everything, right? You have to have, we're going to have Sephiroth in this game. We're going to have, we're going to blow everything right away. We're going to introduce everything that people loved about Final Fantasy VII. We're going for it right now. Um, all in. And I understand why they did that. They have to make money. Um, so there's a lot of remember this because they have to. I don't, I don't blame them. I, I, I have the same job they do. Um, I, I have to do things like that. Um, and, but I do think that, you know, everyone's love of it it's just hetero, heterodox to mind. Like it's, it's just orthogonal. I, I wanted the tightly operatic control of the Final Fantasy VII soundtrack and I got everything all at once. Um, so I give them credit for doing it. What, you know, doing what they aim to do well, it was not what I was hoping for. That's a summary of my feelings about the game as a whole, I suppose. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, I think we're pretty much all in agreement that the characters were captured very faithfully, which is, which is interesting. I mean, like it seems to be, and, and I'm really happy about that because that is sometimes one of the hardest things. You talk a lot about um, the the uh, Prince. You talk a lot about the uh, the comic book adaption analogy, right? And I think that what I have noticed in the Marvel films or uh, DC films, at least my observation, I'm not like a hardcore comic book fan or anything like that. So yeah. I, I watch these very casually, <laughs> and I yeah. don't know a lot about them. But what has been apparent to me to observe about people going to see this is that when they get the characters right, when when I mean, because it's an adaption, so they can't tell the story exactly the same as in the comic book. It's not possible within the limited format of a movie. But if they get the character correct, if they present Deadpool the way Deadpool was in the comic books, they do really well and people really like them. And if they get the character wrong a lot of times it doesn't go so well. And so it's it's interesting to me that maybe aside from Sephiroth, as the only exception, I feel like all of the characters were very faithfully recreated from the original. I think that that's what they did by far the best. Um, were you going to say something? Oh, I was actually going to say that uh, even NPCs are actually very interesting in this game. <laughs> like, Which NPCs did you, did you um, like? Just various dialogue throughout the town that you'll hear sometimes. Oh, sure, because yeah. they're always chatting, and yeah, I've, I've right. noticed that. And um, they they do it in the same style that they do, like Final Fantasy Thirteen, where you just sort of hear it as you walk by. But I feel like what these NPCs had to say was a lot more meaningful and uh, added more context to the world than pretty much any Final Fantasy we've seen in a long time. Mm. Yeah, and and uh, fifteen especially, I think NPCs were a big source of criticism, uh, kind of around the board. <laughs> <laughs> they, they did like nothing. They they weren't even part of the world. In yeah, that they game. were just kind of like... just populating the area so that it looks like people are there. Okay, um, I want to jump real quick into game design, and then we'll get into more story stuff at the end, and that's where we're wrapping up. So I want to bounce this idea off of everybody. It may take me a, a little bit to get through this, but this is something that I noticed. And I want to see if you guys noticed this too or felt the same way. Um, I think you posted it on Twitter the other day, Prince, uh, that recent interview 
where they kind of they they said that uh, Nomura was kind of overseeing story and world. Obviously, Kojima wrote, and then they had uh, Toriyama, Motomo Toriyama, director of the Final Fantasy Thirteen trilogy. He was in charge of game design. That was kind of he was a co-director on the game, but he was kind of overseeing the game design portion of it. And my feeling on this game is that that is very clear and obvious because this game feels more like Final Fantasy 13 2.0 to play <laughs> than it does feeling like Final Fantasy 7 to play. And I'm not saying that as some kind of like, uh, well, I think everyone who watches my channel knows my my feelings on Final Fantasy 13, but I'm not saying this right now as some sort of like uh, criticism of it to say because it's designed in this way it's bad um, because I do think that it's improving a lot of things that I did not like about Final Fantasy 13's core structure but um, you know the the last podcast we did we talked about um, how this what is the spirit of Final Fantasy was sort of like the underlying question of that podcast we were trying to arrive at an answer to that and um, there was a couple of good comments that I read. Uh, one of them was highlighting an interview with Sakaguchi from many, many years ago where he talks about his orthodox RPG formula, that he has like a formula that he follows when he makes games. And it's been interesting to me to see how I can see that because I've recently played Lost Odyssey and I've recently played um, The Last Story. And though the last story is more of an action RPG and not so much an orthodox RPG, I have still seen the Sakaguchi formula for things like story pacing, for things like how long is a dungeon, for things like, you know, how does he handle A, B, C, and D. And those things are clear as day to me. And Lost Odyssey feels like traditional Final Fantasy in a huge way. Hmm. Um and when I play Final Fantasy VII Remake, I see Motomo Toriyama. I see his <laughs> fingerprint all over that. And um, not just Toriyama either, because before they consolidated their business divisions, um, this was done by Business Division One. So for the most part, and you can't really say this out loud, this is basically the Final Fantasy thirteen team. Team, yeah. uh, With a couple of hires on it. So Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I see it especially in map design. Right. Yeah. Like everyone, everyone slams Final Fantasy 13 for being super linear. I, I am not this person who's going to sit up here and say that linear game design is bad because it's not. Some of my favorite games of all time were the Prince of Persia trilogy, uh, PS2, GameCube, Xbox era. And those are extremely guided linear games, right? In my FF13 review, I talk about how linearity is not the problem. It's about how well you can mix up the gameplay so that you're not just doing one thing all the time. Running forward, fight. Running forward, fight. Running forward, fight. For two hours through a dungeon, that <laughs> becomes really old. And one thing that Prince of Persia does really well is that it gives you this great blend of platforming, combat, story, puzzle solving and it's it's constantly sort of switching that up and it's not doing one thing too much and i i can see how the attempt to do that here 
I, I saw that he tried to inject some kind of mini gameish sort of things into some of these dungeons. Uh, examples being like those hands that you have to operate and like give Aerith a ride around so that she can go get the materia over here and then like go kick the ladder down so you can get through the area. Uh, and then like that other one where Cloud stays inside of the, the control room and they go out and they have to like pump the box or whatever in order to free up the the pipes so that the water could be drained or whatever it was they were doing so you see areas where i think he he has tried to inject some um diversity into into the gameplay so you're not just doing one thing all the time that being said uh the dungeon length and the map design are so ff13 to me that i've i've been and and I don't say this uh, to be like um, I don't know like critical of anyone else's commentary on the game necessarily. It's just surprised me that more people haven't been bringing this up. That this game, from a a total ground structure game de- design philosophy level, is clearly a Motomo Toriyama product and not nothing like Sakaguchi's formula. Right. And, and this is go ahead. I, th- I think it's a fear thing. Honestly, people, the reception for 13 hasn't always been the greatest. Sure. It's the most divisive title in the series by far. Well, it was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh but, uh, no, <laughs> no, but, uh, seriously though, like, I think so many people are afraid to compare it to 13 in that sense, because with 13, not being the most well-received, you know, and being divisive, you you don't want to even anything that's 50 50, it can be seen as a negative. Mm-hmm. And I think when a lot of people talk about remake, they don't want to associate it with 13, even though pretty much a lot of the team on remake is 13's team. But it's that it's that negative perception that 13 got that I think, you know, even creators like myself and Prince, it's just not something you bring up because of that. Because the connotation will be seen as negative automatically. The stigma, the stigma of 13 will be seen negatively if you compare it to any other title. Sure. But like um, one thing that that really stuck out to me, too, was um, the insertion of so many dungeons that were at least an hour long, some longer. Like um, you have the the lead up through the corkscrew tunnel of just going up to sector five, followed by that underplate sort of dungeon where you're going around like switching on lights and diverting power and just trying to work your way into the reactor at all it's like i would i i didn't measure this one but i think it was pretty close to like an hour 15 minutes to get through those two sort of mini dungeons that those were new added that weren't in the original then you have it's, it's five hours between don corneo's mansion and the plate and the yes i was about to get to that right because uh the two screen sewer section of the original game, literally two screens. You you have the area you land in where you fight the app's boss. You go to a, down a ladder to another screen, and then you go up and you're in the train graveyard. That's an hour-long dungeon now. And then the train graveyard, while larger screens, was also only two screens. And those were very open, and there was lots of treasure to get, and you'd fight a lot of battles in between your running around on those maps. But I would say the amount of time it takes to get through train graveyard on a relaxed playthrough maybe about 15 minutes, 20 minutes so, stops. A, a lot of the reason for that, that extra padding though, too, 
uh-huh. is because the significant amount of time that it create uh, takes to create those assets now, they feel like they have to utilize them more often. And yeah. so you do kind of get that artificial padding a lot of times. And, and there was someone who can... brought there's someone who brought that up on uh, on Twitter to me yesterday, where it was like, well, why why do they feel like they have to pad the game this much? My conclusion is probably <laughs> a little more cynical in that they're trying to find a way to justify selling the game that is that only has Midgard. They don't actually have the content to fill that game to 30 or 40 hours. So they're trying to pad it so that it will feel justified. His conclusion was when you spend that much time creating assets, uh, it, it makes more sense to create a larger dungeon or experience using them go ahead with what your point was going to be though pat those are two of the same thing i I deal with this every day um art is 70 percent of our costs um yeah i mean we just in art like you get blocked by art um artists get blocked you have to create let's just um and and assets creation is just a huge focal point on any game production um you often are waiting for that and you, you the project will just simply slow down i mean but when you get something as um, as intense as Final Fantasy VII, right? You have to you have to do a concept, you have to do a render, you have to do a low poly, you have to rig and then light and then test and then debug, and you have to have graphics programmers like my programmers on my mid market game indie games uh, do everything. They make the gameplay, they make the assets run. We use simple prefabs; it's very simple. But Final Fantasy VII remake has an entire team just dedicated to programming the way that monsters are animated. And those people are expensive. And they always happen. They were expensive in Final Fantasy VII Original, too, but there were just fewer of them, and there were fewer polygons. And there was just less technology. You didn't have to have licenses for five or six different programs. I mean, you have... Sometimes you have a program, something to rig, a program to rig, or a program to make, render, rig, and light. Those are all different programs, depending on what your workflow is like. And and just having people who are experts in those things, you might need a person to do each of those. Um, and you might need a person to do each of those for both characters and environments. So yeah, game development has gotten expensive. Unsustainably so, I think we're going to have. Oh yeah, I, I think it's totally ballooned out of control. And, and you know, with the way that they that devs are overworked too, right? This was a point somebody brought up, and and it, it's, it's so true with... Uh, the stories coming out about how CD Projekt Red overworks its its staff, how uh, uh, Naughty Dog overworks its staff. It's just the crunch is so insane and people's health is jeopardized because of it. But like that business model has got to change at some point because I think you had brought this up earlier too, Hat, or, or, or Pat, with um, the original game, FS7, was for its time the most expensive video game ever produced at $45 million. You adjust for inflation, that's getting into the realm of like 75, 80-ish today, right? This game, I guarantee, was 150 million plus, somewhere in that range, like way, way, way more expensive to make, even than the original game. And, and the Japanese credit market in the 90s was much better, too. Um, yeah, there sure. was a lot more money flying around until about 1997. So um, they could make, and then Square Enix had this gold standard reputation. They had nothing but hits, hits, hits. So yeah. everyone was willing to underwrite them. Not so much anymore. I mean, like you can't like CD Projekt Red, right? They got for Witcher Three, they got a massive amount of um, funding, and uh, or um, another good example is uh, Red Dead Redemption Two. Who wouldn't write them a check? Yeah. Um, you know, but you don't, and that that's a comparable scope in terms of making like probably Red Dead Redemption 2's budget will probably be similar to the Final Fantasy whatever sequels 
however many games this is budget. But just trying to get that funding is not so easy, especially when they had a huge misstep. Um, I guess they, they subcontracted parts of this game out. To, to yeah, a different studio at first, and they had to yeah, bring it back and then in that house. flopped. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a, you have to write that off. Um, maybe you could salvage some assets, but that's a big waste of money. So, you know, Japanese developers can't always afford that. Yeah, and then, you know, even if they were to sell exactly the same number of copies of Final Fantasy's every remake as they did the original, they'd still their profits would be way, way down just because of the bal- totally ballooned costs. of. Oh, the- they'd lose money. Oh, yeah, for sure. So the decision to make it into multiple games starts to make a lot more sense. And I know that you can't bring your devs out and say this to people. <laughs> it <would laughs> destroy your marketing, but like, you know, at least I, I, I just hope that people in discussing some of this quote-unquote padding that we're seeing in the FS7 remake, we can understand that there has to be some motivation there in terms of we, we need, we, they, but I guess, I guess where I struggle with it is that this was Yoichi Wada's entire, like, philosophy and conundrum with the business model of Squaresoft. He was like, why are we not making sequels to games we've already created assets for? We spent all this time making a game engine. We spent all this time making all these assets. Why are we not using them again to quickly turn something around? Those things have become DLC, right? Um, Witcher 3, lots of DLC. Sure, expansions. Skyrim, lots of DLC. Because once you have that engine and those assets, you need to monetize. Because the $60 price point is a curse. People won't move beyond it. Yeah, um, it's it's, it's, it's roughly problem. the same. It's, it's roughly video. the same cost to buy a new video game today as it was in in 1997. It was fifty dollars back then. It's sixty dollars today. You know, and imagine trying to buy a car. If you tried to buy a Toyota back then, um, it was a lot cheaper. Yeah, for sure. So, anyways, I'm not sure where I'm going. With this. Let me return to the FF13 comparison. <laughs> Got a little <laughs> bit off on a tangent there. Um, you know, you can see in other areas too, uh, it just in general pacing, scene direction, um, the stagger mechanic being a big part of the battle system, things of that nature. Um, so I guess like ultimately what, what, what I felt by the time I finished the game, aside from any problem I might have had or anything that I liked about the story, which was as Pat brought up earlier, like combat, I actually brought this on one of my older podcasts too. I don't think combat was the point in terms of like what people really enjoyed about the original game. It was the story. It was the characters. It was the materia system. That was like the unique RPG gameplay element that like really made it stand out. And the materia system is combat preparation. Yeah. Preparing for combat. How, how do you go about that? And, and each final fantasy game approached that in a different way. That was the thing they iterated on or changed or experimented with every time. Um, a lot of the other underlying formula that Sakaguchi had main was the same with each game. Um, so, I guess my point is when I came to the end of FF seven remake, I felt like a lot of that essence, that formula from the original was kind of like replaced with Toriyama's formula, which is, and this is just me. This is just an opinion. It's not to say that it's good or bad because you can't really say that, but it's to say that I disagree with Toriyama's approach personally because I think he he wants to create a very guided experience. He doesn't he doesn't 
because uh, he thinks that in order to tell a good story, you have to do that. You have to really like lead the player if you want to tell a good story. If you give them too much freedom, they're you know you can't create a lot of urgency about like you need to go here now. And they're like, now nah, I'm going to go do like 50 side quests first. Or <laughs> uh, the meteor is about to crash and you're going to go around uh, racing chocobos and gold saucer, right? I mean, like there is some level of disconnect there with like being able to create a sense of urgency in storytelling. And I get that. But I think that he tends to take it personally. I think he takes it too far to the point where the level of freedom and customization and, and choice that is a, an integral part of what makes RPGs what they are is a little bit lost in his games. So what do you guys feel on on that route in terms of like how the game feels to play versus the original? I think some of you already touched on this. You already expected it to be wildly different. But that was something that I was at least hoping they would try to be a little bit more faithful to. What do you guys feel about that? Let's start with Prince again. Um, so in terms of Final Fantasy 13 design, yeah, there's a lot of Toriyama stuff in here. And it does like feel almost like a continuation in the gameplay sense of the Final Fantasy 13 trilogy. Although it's a lot, 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 lot better in terms of a number of things. For example, I'm constantly going through all my combat options, my materia set up. Um, my materia, like, like which materia that I'm using is changing constantly. And I view that as a very good thing because the game is constantly mixing things up in terms of variety, in terms of enemies, in terms of strategies that I have to employ, um, which is something that I did not necessarily feel with 13. Once I had my paradigm set up with the characters that whichever chapter that it gave me, I was pretty much fine. Uh, I never was at the point where I feel like I was maybe defeated in one match and then I come back I fight that battle again, and then I won. It was usually a matter of grinding out the Crystarium, um, using one very specific strategy, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> sure. and winning each battles. And here, there is so much diversity. And I think the reason people don't approach this or aren't offended by this in the same manner that they were with the 13 trilogy here is that, one, the characters are good. I love Cloud. I love Tifa. I love Aerith. I love Barrett. And their interactions are good and their dialogue is good. Mm-hmm. And so when I actually get to the next cutscene, there that trigger in my brain that feels reward, it goes off. Sure. <laughs> Whereas it didn't go off in Final Fantasy 13, because I would have the characters groaning about Lassie and Falsy and all these other very abstract terms that walking I'm walking tropes. Yeah. Yeah, walking <laughs> yeah. tropes, exactly. And and that's what they felt like. Uh versus in this game. I do feel rewarded by each cutscene that I'm getting and learning more about the characters in the world and going through it. Um, so I think that is one of the biggest things. Other than that, um, the again, the combat is actually in, like, <laughs> it's something that I think most people, when they go through, they will actually find enjoyable to a large degree. And because it's constantly mixing things up in combat, because the way all the weapon systems and materia is integrated into all that, I feel like I have a lot of micro choices that happen that don't necessarily happen within Final Fantasy 13. Because mm-hmm. Final Fantasy 13's linearity is not just about its level design, it's how you literally progress in everything. Yeah, the Crystarium, <laughs> everything is just straightforward. Right. There's not a lot of choice there. Even that, the that... flow of battle is, is linear to some degree, which is kind of oh, weird. Oh, sure. 
And uh, and I think it's interesting to bring up the Crystarium, the difference between that and, say, the weapon upgrading in FF7 Remake, right, where they look very similar. But here you do have more choice in saying, like, I'm not going to purchase this uh, upgrade. I'm going to go for this one on the level two section first. So you do have more choice there. So I do agree. It is perhaps an evolved and improved Final Fantasy 13 formula, a Final Fantasy 13 2.0, if you will. Yeah, towns, <laughs> towns, which they said were impossible. Yes, towns. <laughs> that, that's 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 another thing too. Is that yeah. you do get to these incredible locations like Wall Market, which was handled fantastically in this game. Um, in between these dungeons that are somewhat long, uh, this is probably somewhat controversial to say. I feel like the game's pacing would have been incredible had the game been about 10 hours shorter. I agree 100%. But I, I think it would have been a yeah. way better game if they had just cut content. Yeah. You know who agrees with that? Hironobu Sakaguchi. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm in the minority, especially in the JRPG community, where I will almost always prefer, prefer a shorter game I'm... to a more bloated one. I am 100% on board because Chrono Trigger is my favorite game of all time and there's literally not one ounce anywhere of padding or filler. Everything is meaningful. Every quest tells a story. There's nothing that is nothing, nothing in that game that, that needed to be cut or doesn't feel like it belongs whatsoever. Also, we all have jobs now. Yeah. <laughs> I so, thought Nier Automata was really good at that too. Yes, absolutely. 20-hour yeah. game. One of the best stories, period, that I've ever I, been. I think 20 hours is like the freaking sweet spot. I know that all Same. of us are in the minority because RPG <laughs> players seem to love 100-hour experiences, but it's like, dude, most of that is just repeating. Like, I, I, the, the Witcher 3 is my second favorite game of all time, and this is the only reason why. Like, it's it's the best I've ever seen at repeating certain kinds of content and trying to make them meaningful because the questing is absolutely spectacular in that game it's it's the best questing of any game i've ever played but you are essentially repeating the same types of things over and over and over again this is a big just overall criticism of open world games in the modern age where you have icons that indicate okay that's this is this type of thing and this is this type of thing and they repeat it they they to create maybe five or six different things you can do and each of them has like 30 iterations of it spread across this giant map and so like you turn what is essentially 20 hours of content into 100 hours of content or more just by doing that. And so, like, yeah, I prefer to really cut down and trim it so that it's a really focused experience that's in the 20-hour range than doing meaningless busy work for 100 hours so that I can level up enough to actually fight the final boss. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? But they, they, they also could not have gone that direction because if this game was less than 30 hours... Oh, people would have been pissed. People would have been pissed and they would have said that, oh, it's, uh, you know, it's a cash grab instead of being a, a legitimate full-size game, like they said. Because yeah. to a, a large number of JRPG fans, it's not a full-size JRPG unless it's 100 hours long. Yeah. And I would just... I'd rather not play a game with so much pack. I'd rather just get to the meat. For sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, instead of getting to all the fluff. And I think the worst offender um, in this game is chapter 14. Mm. Chapter 14, it has a lot of freedom because you can go back and you can do all the side quests, but it's the main story quest where you go back through the sewers and you have to refight uh, Abzu again. Oh, and it's yeah. just, that was when I was like, this is, the most obvious padding in the yeah, game. Yeah, for sure. 
And at that point, that's when it dawned on me. I was like, man, if this game was a little shorter and just no padding, it would have been so much tighter. I would have experience. liked the game a lot more if yeah. they hadn't added as many of those really long dungeons and if they didn't have as many of the side quests. That's, and why, I know- uh, that's why Final Fantasy Thirteen Two is a better game too. Sure. Because with Final Fantasy Thirteen, like you said in your review, there is just like these massively long dungeons. And sometimes like when you like think back on that game, it feels like you were stuck in a dungeon for the whole game. Yeah. It's, I guess it, you kind it, of counts. It, 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 accounts, it, it accounts for more than 50% of the playtime in FF13. Yeah. And I feel similarly about this game. 50% of its playtime, I think I beat it in like 30-something-ish hours, 32, 33, something like that. But like half of that time was added dungeons or new side quests. And it's like, I would have rather just freaking had the game be 15 hours. Personally, yeah. I know a lot of people will disagree with that, but I honestly felt like it would have been a better game for it. Yeah, yeah. I, I have I have posited in scholarly articles that I put my name under that the spirit of the JRPG, at least as far as it went to about 2001, was that you don't do side content or you do it later, right? You do it after the game and the post game when it's over. And that the whole point of especially Final Fantasy was to just be main quest the entire time. That was, it became an artistic strategy starting in Final Fantasy IV and going on from there until about Final Fantasy X. was just, why don't we just give them what they want all the way through and just focus on plot and character, and we'll even leave other things by the wayside. We'll leave interesting combat. We'll leave freedom of choice. We'll leave, you know, wandering around and backtracking and all that stuff. We'll get rid of all the things that exist in reputable RPGs that even we like, but we'll just focus on just main quest because that's what we can do well. Um, and I think they, you know, for reasons that I sympathize with, have lost that here. But they could have recovered some modicum of it by, yes, by not having the sewers go twice, by not having, you know, the, the tension, you have the tension of, oh, the plate's going to fall on Sector 7. Now here's six hours of content. Like, oh, and, the and, the characters, and the characters are desperate. They're desperate right. to get up there. And it's like, you then can. they're going to screw around with this ghost kid for like an hour. Right. You can't sustain that. You can't sustain tension. Like, it's like the, the whole point of that in the original game was that there was this tension and then there was the payoff on the tension right away. And then because the payoff was negative, it was a like heel victory. You're like, wow, that's a real twist. And then you have, then you things slow down and you climb the wire up to the, the plate and then, you know, all that stuff happens. But like, that is JRPG, right? Where it's like, um, you know, uh, quest starts, quest ends, new arc, right? You have, you, you have, uh, have setting, exposition, uh, conflict results, boom, 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 boom. And you have that through the entire game. Um, no, no gaps in between. The, everything you do is either important to the main plot or to the development of a specific character. And that didn't happen the later you get in this version. Uh, we haven't heard from you in a while, soldier. Uh, let's 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 get some of your input on this. What do you feel? So, like for me, I I personally, it's funny. Prince and I were playing the game side by side, basically, and we would like message each other stuff. And one of the things that I messaged him specifically about was the chapter fourteen padding in the sewers. I was like, I didn't really particularly care for the sewers the first time why do I want to go through it a second time? Have it, <laughs> like I'm chasing this little rat thing around yeah. to get my key or whatever. And it's not even a key. It's a necklace. And then like, I got to fight abs again or Abzu, I should say. And like, I liked fighting Abzu, but at the same time, I'm like, why? 
And then when it came to like side quest, I thought the best version of side quest was in chapter nine when you're doing wall market. Because mm, they thought, were tied into the actual. Exactly. They were tied market. into everything that was going on. And it's like, depending on what, uh, uh, which one of Corneo's lackeys that you went to, the, the quest would be slightly different. Or even if they weren't different, you got a different result based on what character you went to first or what character you interacted with the most or whatever. So I thought that that was really cool. I thought that was a really good implementation of side quests. Chapter three, I think it was when you meet Tifa and you do all the side quests for her. I thought some of them were okay. And then I saw, thought some of them were clearly padding. Mm -hmm. Um, Chapter 14 was definitely weird. Uh, I liked some of the side quests. I thought the, I want to say that chapter 14 is the one that had the angel of the slums, if I'm not yep. mistaken. Where you discover the identity. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked that one. I thought that tied to the lore of the game and it actually did pay off in the end. I noticed um, with the whole moral and everybody rebuilding sector seven, you know, at the end of that quest, they tell you, okay, well the tiaras are going to be sold for money to help, you know, with all this stuff. And I thought that was really cool. I thought that was a good side quest that actually tied into the lore of the game. And when the side quests did that, I thought they were great. When they didn't, and they were just kind of like, oh, you know, go kill this rat. That's where I kind of was like, well, you know, that 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 could have been taken out, and it would not have affected my, you know, opinion on the game. Sure. There, there was a rat somewhere in a side quest. It was called like a, it was not just like Doom Rat. It was like an apocalypse rat. Does anyone remember? I can't remember the term. Uh, I want to say it was like a rat. Yeah, was it was it not? Oh, I thought it was. There was a were rat, but there was yeah. also something like like something more sinister, and I was just like, "Did that just happen?" I can't remember. Or apocalypse rack or something. I think it was, it was just doom like, rat. I think it's yeah, the first yeah. time you do side quests. Yeah, because it's, it's just like, like doom rat. <laughs> 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 that's that's funny. Like doom train, doom stalker, like doom rat. <laughs> I, I, I will say though, the the side quests in this game do feel a lot more fulfilling to complete than they did in Final Fantasy fifteen. See, I I I think some of them were, but I think right. a large majority of them felt basically the same. They felt like errand running. Right. Um like like there was something to bring it up, uh, you know, it makes sense for Tifa to take you around in Sector 7 and, and introduce you to people because he wants to be a mercenary. This is going to be his occupation in Midgar, so he's trying to get his name out there. I get that to a sense, but I don't think a, mer- a hardened mercenary is going to walk up to a five-year-old and be like, yeah, I'll help you find your three cats that are lost. Like, And, and Cloud that's... is frequently incredulous at the tasks he's asked to do. Yeah, It's almost like the character's like, what game am I in? <laughs> yeah. Now, going and hunting monsters that threaten the area yes like they send you out into that what do they call that little area you run out there and you fight a bunch of monsters out there that's scrapyard or something yeah the scrapyard that makes sense uh killing the doom rat (laughs) right makes sense um not helping a teacher locate her students or helping a girl find her kittens or helping a, a, a chocobo ranger find his lost birds. These are things, especially at the times in which they came up, like it, Tifa and Barrett feel super guilty that like they feel responsible in some sense that Aerith has been captured by the Turks and, and taken into the Shinra headquarters. 
And Tifa turns to you and says, look, I know that this is really important that we, you know, go after her, but we should really stay here and try and help people as much as we can with rebuilding after the seven sector plate fell. And it's like, okay, if it's on the way type of a thing, and and I, I can sort of see that because at least in this game, they introduced you to a lot more NPCs in sector seven, right? It's like, you got to know more people there. So like you'd have a greater attachment in theory to them and want to help them out along the way. But the, the, the actual quests they came up with felt in terms of urgency or importance so far down the totem pole to rescuing Aerith (laughs) that it was like, and, and I get that they're, I get that they're optional. You don't have to do them. But in the way that the game's leveling is paced, in terms of your character's growth, there's a lot of stuff you're going to miss out on. Materia and chances to level up and things of this nature that you're not going to get if you don't do those quests. And you're going to feel behind a bit, in my opinion, if you don't do them. That's not to say it's impossible to beat the game if you don't do them. But See, I actually, I love Chadley's side missions. I thought those were really good because... They tied into the combat, they tied into leveling, and they actually taught you how to play the game better mm-hmm. by doing those certain tasks. So, like the stagger mechanics, you know, you sure. learn how to stagger different enemies better because of Chadley. Serves as like a tutorial of sorts. Yeah, and then like the the VR missions. I thought the VR missions were really cool. And you did get some really, really good rewards, like limit breaks and really good materia to use for later in the game. And it when they did it in that way, I thought the side quests were really fantastic. They felt optional. And I guess when you saw the side quests in the other chapters, even though they were optional, the the presentation of them didn't feel that way. Mm. But when it came to Chadley and the VR battles and Corneo's Coliseum, it just felt like something you could go do if you wanted to. And if you did, you got really cool rewards. But the other ones almost felt like forced side quests, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Um, before we jump over to storytelling, I want to talk about the combat for a second, because it seems like you guys, all of you have been really impressed with it. And I had a couple of very specific gripes with it. And I just want to see if you guys agreed that this was irritating or not, or whether it wasn't a problem for you. So, Uh, Number one was how the ATB was handled. I have been fascinated with the concept of a hybrid system that gets both the controlling a party of characters right and also the exciting rush of like real-time combat from an action game right. I haven't ever seen it done like in a way that satisfied me before, but Square has been specifically hell-bent on figuring this out. And they've had good ideas here and there and in other ways it hasn't really worked and i wish the atb was just a timed cool down so to speak like the original was rather than requiring you to do actual physical attacks standard attacks to quickly get it and the only reason why is because the ai characters for the most part stand around blocking and doing nothing unless you take control of them directly and I get that part of that is they don't want the AI character to turn into Donald where he just wastes all of your potions <laughs> and, and elixirs and stuff, right? They don't want them to act without you telling them what to do. And that's not really the thing. I think if they got their ATB up and then stu- and did not use their actual abilities, 
that'd be fine. But it felt to me like I was being forced to constantly switch, not because I needed to for a strategic reason, but because I just need your ability. I need it now. Like, <laughs> please have an ability. And um, I, I would have liked at least the choice of play style to, in certain situations, like against Genova Rebirth, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the, the physical melee attacks are counter. She has a counter to that, right? So if you're just running up there slashing her, she'll like whip you or whatever. So it's smarter to control Aerith in that fight and attack from a distance where she can't hit you. But if I don't switch over and make Cloud attack, he's not going to get his stupid abilities and I can't I can't just put pull up the command menu and hit R2 and go, okay, now you do this. So there were certain situations where I wanted to play it that way. I wanted to control Aerith only, or I wanted to control Cloud only, and just tell the other people what to do when their ATB filled up. But if if I don't tell them to attack, it goes up so freaking slow that they will never get an ability when I need it. <laughs> and so I felt a little bit forced into a certain playstyle this way, and I would have rather had more choice there. Did that bother any of you guys at all? I, See, I, it, go ahead. You, you, no, no, you first. You first. So it didn't really bother me until like late game when the bosses started getting really, really difficult yeah. compared to the other like beginning to mid-level bosses. And I started noticing it and it did bother me a little, a little bit. I, I kind of wish that they had implemented something like a gambit system, like from 12. Yes, I really wish they had done that. And for me, it's like I'd be slashing away with Cloud. I'd have two ATB bars already. And it's like Tifa doesn't hardly have any of her bar. And so I didn't mind the character switching so much because I liked playing with all the characters. Um, but I, I did notice that that was sort of an issue. And I did, I did wish that they had like a gambit style system, maybe not exactly the gambit system, but something that was like, I need you to be defending or I need you to be building your ATB right now. Or yeah. just tell that to, tell it, I mean, this is, goes back to even like uh like Secret of Mana, Trials of Mana days, where you had at least some way to tell them be a little more aggressive or heal more or something. It was very rudimentary back then, but like something that where you could give a direction uh, to have the AI do act a little bit differently than I felt like every time I switched off of Cloud, he would literally just block and walk around. <laughs> and maybe do like three hits and then he'd sit there and block and walk around again. And it's like, that's not how this game works. That's not how you play it. You have to be constantly putting pressure in order to get your abilities. What were you going to say, uh, Prince? Um, I actually disagree like, okay. en entirely. Uh, so the reason that it's balanced that way, I, at first I found myself in your position, but as I got deeper in the combat, especially playing the game on hard mode and like really learning the mechanics, the thing is, if everybody's ATB meter was constantly charging at the same rate, everybody at any moment would be available to use an item. And once you have that situation going on, you have the exact same problem with Final Fantasy XV, where at any point you could just pause, potion, and you're good, and you escape any consequences of um, not playing good, let's just say that way. And um, they force you to switch characters and build those characters ATB as part of the strategy of the battle system. Say, for example, um, I want to be cured or I want uh, someone in my party to be cured. One of the best ways to do that is to have Barrett sit far back and shoot and then have him cure and switch over to him. Um, 
the thing that they want or the message that I feel like they were trying to send with the destruction of this gameplay was is that they want they want you to control every single person and to become extremely proficient with every single character. And um, if you could just sit there and hand them commands, you would never have to become proficient with those characters. And that's another thing too. But like you said, it, it would be nice to have the choice. But ultimately, I think um, if they did do that, you would have a game where you can either spam too many of your powerful options because your ATB charges allow you to do those abilities that are super powerful. And if everyone was charging those up all at once, you'd have this situation where uh, like five seconds in the battle, you could just nuke everything or you could always cure um, to full HP at any second. So, so that, that's, that's why that they did. Uh, they did I, I think that that's a fair point. I think that what I would have preferred to fix that problem is to just limit your resources, right? When you go to the little vending machines and you can buy ethers and potions and all these different things, they do have like, I don't know what they call it technically, those little sales where it's like, you can buy three of these for a 100% discount or whatever. Right. right. But then you buy more of them at the regular price. It was kind of an interesting thing where it's like, we want you to, it's like they could tell you're probably going to need some <laughs> mega potions coming up. Let's at least gift you with three of these right now. But if they had just limited your availability to restorative items more. And it, they do that in hard mode, actually. You can't use items at all. Yeah, you can't all. use items at all. Yeah. And <laughs> this, actu this actually leads me into my second gripe, which is that you can get interrupted after you have put an input in. And not only do you lose your ATB on the action and the character let, let's say i was casting a, a spell and right before i cast it the enemy ran up and knocked me back on the ground uh right you don't get the cast you lose the atb and you lose the mp2 <laughs> yeah the mp was the big problem for that me. that has led actually to what i think is a major design flaw for hard mode because you can't use items to restore your mp so if you try to cast thondaga in a hard mode battle and it doesn't it doesn't get off you are freaking screwed yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely I, <laughs> I actually so i'm kind of the contrarian on this topic because okay. i actually so i love when games make you have a certain timing and yeah like looking for a window to attack yeah so for me it felt like so if you want to fire off a fire spell super quick low damage but it, it gets the point across you know as soon as you start leveling up that materia and it gets you know you're into fire and it takes a little bit longer so you know if you're fighting a fast enemy you, you kind of have to like the wolf enemies or whatever you want to call them uh you know they're a little bit faster so that fire spell may not be as effective and then you've got like fireaga it's super slow and you're not going to want to cast that against an enemy that can close the distance super quickly. So I, I actually do like that system to an extent. The one problem I do have with losing inputs is the cinematic nature of boss fights. Yeah. If you go into a cutscene in a boss fight and just hit your limit break, you lose it. Oh, that's my, that's my and, next and one. As, I'll give as, that too. as low of a chance of getting limit breaks as you already have, to lose that because of a cutscene was the most annoying thing in combat. But yeah. the timing thing, I actually really, really love that. 
That's a fair point. And I think that that was probably because I know for a fact that however I fought Hell House was not the right way. (laughs) Uh, Whatever approach I was trying, it was not working, whatever. I did like one HP with every attack for like two hours and finally beat I don't think anybody did that fight right the first time, to be (laughs) honest. But when when I was looking back and I was like, I wonder if the best opportunity to use even just the magic to try and pressure it is when it opens the door and it drops that shield thing for a second. And then the, the, the color of the windows indicate which magic you're supposed to use on it. And the rest of the time, maybe you're just supposed to attack for the sake of an ATB. So you can cast your regen and you can cast your cures and you can keep yourself fully stocked on MP so that in that very small window of time when that shield drops and he sucks cloud in through the front door you can finally like use some magic to get him pressured and then I don't know I have no idea how to fight that guy the right way I haven't really <laughs> looked into it but I think there is something to what you're saying in terms of the game is trying to give you windows of opportunity for now's the best time to try and use this attack I think that's a good perspective well um, and there's the other thing too back on the, the ATB deal there's actually materia that helps you counteract the fact that your characters I'm, don't I'm attack. glad I'm glad you brought that up because I did want to at least be in fairness bring up the first strike materia um is really good at least for right at the beginning it's a first strike where in the beginning of the battle you'll basically have an ATB available right away or maybe well, two Well actually another one too uh it's ATB assist or something like that oh, it's yeah. where a character builds ATB by blocking that's the perfect thing you want to put on your AI characters too so they did kind of give you an out in that situation, but I do I do understand what you're saying, though, on the other side of it. I'm sure there's also probably ways to use the time material with haste that could probably mitigate this yeah. to some degree. I'm sure there's probably more experimentation I could do. Um, anyways, were you going to say something, Pat? I thought you were coming on there. Yeah, this, sorry to spoil the magic of uh, podcast television, but I am running out of time. It okay. It's late on the East Coast. Um, if you need to go, totally cool. Um Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. How yeah, long have we been going? I, 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 <laughs> oh, wow. It's been almost oh, it's two, been hours. two hours. Five minutes. Holy crap. Yeah. It does not feel like that. How is that possible? <laughs> didn't look at that. Okay, okay. Where are you guys anyway, at? I'm, Where's I'm, everybody at? I know Pat's got to go, but where are you guys at? Do you need to go? I'm good. Dude, I'm good, honestly. Okay. Okay. We'll continue I'm, with well, that, you, Pat. I'm going to I'm going to stay tuned for the next 2 hours of this uh podcast to see what uh where things went. <laughs> where things go. Okay, appreciate you man. Uh yeah. sorry. Uh, I, thank I'm you so much over. for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. No problem. Have a good one, man. Cheers. If it gets too long, split it in the episodes, man. I might have to do that. I had, I had <laughs> oh, no idea. I legitimately three parts. <laughs> three, three parts. Good, I guess. This is, this is getting meta. Um I legitimately had no idea it had been 2 hours. I I thought it had been maybe an hour and 15 minutes. That's um, just freaking crazy. Yeah. Okay. Um but going onto your point, soldier, about the the cutscene interruptions for bosses, uh, this was possibly the most annoying thing to me in the whole battle system, and it was and it's exclusive to boss fights. But you they have phases, so you do enough damage, it goes into phase two of the boss fight, and there's a cutscene. You can't damage it while it's in the middle of the cutscene, and the stagger meter resets, which I just do not understand the purpose of <laughs> at all because like you you work hard to pressure and build and you're using the focus uh, abilities and the right type of magic to try and pressure and stagger the boss so that you can unleash a bunch of damage and then it's like you you literally start to do that and then cutscene sorry reset 
undo everything. And this was this. I have. Um, it's really funny. I I was rewatching my playthrough of the Genova Rebirth. It's Rebirth, right? Uh, Genova Rebirth boss fight in the Shinra head, headquarters. Dreamweaver. Dreamweaver is that what it's called? Yeah. Okay. The Genova boss fight in the in the Shinra headquarters. Um. I pressured it, staggered it, and I was literally about to start using all these abilities I had saved up. It it breaks to phase two and resets the resets the stagger meter. And I, I, I paused and I was like, I'm so sick <laughs> of this happening in every stupid boss fight. And I just took a breath and I was like, okay, let's do it again. I went back in there. I got my limit breaks. I saved them. I saved them specifically for when it was in stagger meter <laughs> in stagger mode. I staggered it again. I clicked on my limit break to initiate it. Cutscene, break, reset the stagger meter, total waste <laughs> of my freaking limit breaks, total waste of my ATBs, reset again. I paused again and I like freaking just got up and I just walked out of the room. <laughs> I, like, I was like, I cannot freaking believe that that happened twice. Yeah. In the um, same fight. And it wouldn't be so bad if you if you knew like when the next phase was gonna happen, if you had yeah. any sort of in indication. Yeah. So like whenever I was doing on heart mode, that was not an issue. But when it was like my first blind playthrough and I had like I had no idea that like these bosses had phase two or phase three to them yeah. and it would heart cut me off, then that's that's when it sort of became a really big issue. Yeah. And then in that same fight, the Genova fight when all the tentacles pop up around, right? So you have to go cut them down and she's Im immune to damage until you do that. I, my, my attention, my camera was taken off of her because I was running around cutting these things down. And then she does that move where it's just like, Wah! you're all freaking dead now. And I, I, <laughs> I couldn't see the visual cue because I was, uh, the design of the fight has you running around focused on other stuff. So that boss fight included two times of being interrupted and losing uh, ATB, losing my limit breaks, and then a one-shot kill on the entire party that I could not have seen coming because I was not looking at the boss. So <laughs> I <Yeah>. was pissed. <laughs> I was freaking pissed. And I, I became embittered toward the combat over these things. That being said... I still think this is the closest they've ever gotten at Square to nailing the hybrid of the two things. I think, like Soldier said, if they can include a gambit system, if they had made character, if they had incentivized character switching, not for the sake of getting your abilities, but for the sake of positioning, right? It's like, say, in Xenoblade Chronicles, the the backslash is more effective from behind and the side slash from the side. So you have to move the characters around the boss or the enemy in order for the moves to have more effectiveness. If they had had something kind of like that, where it's like, I could tell Barrett to use Big Shot or whatever from the position he's in, but it's going to be more effective if he's behind. So I'm going to switch to him and I'm make him run around here to do it. Yeah. I think that for me would have been awesome versus like, no, you got to switch or otherwise they're not going to get their freaking abilities at all. And you're just going to be wasting time. And, and the whole purpose of it is to like build up and get as many attacks or special abilities in as possible to pressure stagger, you know, and get into the flow of combat. Uh, so I think if they can improve those couple things for me, I would have been 100% in love with what they did. And I guess canceling. That's the other part of it. I wish you could yeah. cancel. I <laughs> yeah. really wish you could cancel out of a combo to block. 
Because um, dodging is almost useless in the game. A lot of the enemies track you no matter what you do with dodging. The fire will follow you. The the, the Sahajins that jump up and land, it's they just track you anyway. So dodging is totally useless. But if you could cancel into a block, I would have liked that a lot better too. Same, same. Uh, I definitely agree on cancel into, uh, into a block. That was actually one of my biggest... Uh, criticisms when i was playing the demo was i was like man how come i can't cancel into I a know. plot yeah um and it was it was at the point of where i could like literally see the attack coming and i could like react to it's it like i know it's coming and i was just like but because i started swinging the sword before the attack started up it feels like i can't get out of it in any way and it doesn't even mm-hmm. have to be like a hard cancel where you're just like it, like super mid swing and like you cancel out but if even if it just had like a small delay on it and you could cancel out of it i still feel like that would have been better than kind of how they have it set up now where it's just like you have to wait for that full swing to finish before you can like really go into your block sure and uh i I will say this it was like for me half the bosses i did not feel satisfied afterwards for these reasons i i won i didn't die very often in the game i think i died on genova the genova fight once i died on the hell no i didn't die in the hell house i just survived somehow because i had a million <laughs> mega potions and stuff and but i was not fighting it the right way at all so i didn't feel satisfied when i beat it but oh, man, I, I died on i died on uh ab no not episode two what was it i'm trying to remember all the bosses anyways there was like a two or three bosses i died on but for the most part i i didn't die much in the game but i didn't feel like i survived because i was good i survived because i was just being really defensive and just like i get the atb just use another ether use another mega potion cure regen just survive outlast it (laughs) not because i felt like i was playing aggressively or like really mastering the mechanics and that's partly my fault like i'm not i'm not getting out of my comfort zone and trying new things and when i did do that I, I did get that satisfaction. And for half the bosses, I beat it and I was like, that was sick. Um, I was expecting the Airbuster fight to be really hard because I knew a lot of people had said that they struggled with that. But I played that and I felt like I wrecked the dude. And I was like, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm killing this. Yes, this feels great. So half the time it felt really great and half the time I felt frustrated. But I, I will at least uh, be open to the fact that I just need to get good, right? <laughs> I, do, I do notice, though, that in the combat, if you, like... So if you go into an area prepared, so like I like to use elemental a lot. That's one of my key strategies is knowing what enemies are in a certain area and using that element against them. Because like Mm. when you go into a reactor and you've, I believe you get it elemental right before you get to reactor five. Yeah. I put the elemental on cloud sword for most of the game. Yeah. Same here. Or Barrett's uh, Barrett is really effective with it, but I felt like um, materia like sometimes even something like the simplest stuff that you would never use ends up being really important. Like assess assess is like the most key materia in the game. I feel like because you Mm -hmm. just, you get all those combat strategies and you learn the game that way. Yeah. And I thought that was really cool, but I also liked that like regen, I never used regen the entire time I played the original game. I think it's so helpful in this game. Oh, it is amazing. And, And there's a fight. Uh, Whisper Bahamut. Okay. Or maybe, or maybe it's the regular Bahamut that you fight, but it's got like a, a fury aura or something like that. And whenever you stand close to it, it drains your health. Mm. So all you have to do is cast regen 
and it cancels that out. And it basically cancels that out. And that's like a key strategy in that fight. And I think that's one thing that I did really, really like about the materia system is that, you know, I felt in the original, there were materia that I got just to say that I had them, but I never used them. Right. And it felt like with the limited amount of materia that you get in the remake, every materia could have a use or could have a, an important thing to do mm. in remake. And I, that's what I really, really liked about the materia system. I, I agree. That, I, I think materia was probably my second thing that I felt like they did right in with the remake. My first was they got cloud, right? Finally. Yay. Cloud is actually <laughs> yeah. correct. Yeah. Number two was materia materia was I think really well utilized in the game. And the fact that you could add materia slots to weapons, like keeping the buster sword a relevant weapon through the whole game is awesome. That's like a great change from the original. Cause it's like that weapon is literally, I think aside from the meteor silhouette behind the title and maybe clouds hair is like the most iconic symbol of final fantasy seven and it becomes completely useless after like two hours of playing the original game actually, and you never I touch actually, it again i actually made a video like two months ago before the remake came out talking about how excited i was that the buster sword was actually going to be viable for yeah. longer than two hours yeah i think i literally used the buster sword 90 percent of the time that's awesome because you could add those slots and it could improve and it could get better and that's what gives me hope for part two is that can I bring the Buster Sword with me through every single part of this remake? Yeah. And that's one thing that I'm really excited about is, yeah. is that that system made every single weapon viable no matter what. Even the weird, wonky physical weapons for Barrett yeah. felt great and they felt like they had a purpose and their combat was specifically tooled for that. So I thought that was really cool. But Barrett actually has a funny thing that he does. If he's using a physical weapon, like his uh, cannonball thing or whatever, he can actually still use his maximum fury, which is like the rapid fire, mm -hmm. even with that. So I thought that those kind of wonky, cool yeah. things that some like sometimes the original had that. Yeah. You know, and they're putting stuff like that in the remake. I thought that was kind of funny and cool. Yeah, I liked the way weapons were handled. I thought that that was pretty well done. And the fact mm. that you could use all of them in different, you could upgrade them how you saw fit. You could make choices there. You could choose if you wanted. I think for a while when I didn't have Aerith or Barrett like available, I'm trying to remember. Anyways, I used Tifa with her magic gloves for a long time and I made her my magic user, even though she's supposed to be like the hardest hitting melee character in the game, right? Like she hits harder than Cloud for the most part. But like the fact that she was viable because I had paired like a high level magic with um, the what is it? it? It's the it's this game's version of all magnify magnify where you could cast Firaga and it's going to hit all the dudes. And it's just like they all go into pressure like immediately. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. oh, my gosh, this is awesome. So now like you know, it made managing um, mobs a lot better. So I, I think they nailed materia on top of nailing like the personalities of the main cast. Uh, that was one area that I think that they did really well. Well, and I liked that magic was actually, even if you didn't have magnify magic was actually AOE. Oh, yeah. so, so like if you shot off a fire August spell, if there was anybody within like a foot or two of that enemy, they'd get hit with it too. And you didn't even need magnify. 
So I thought that stuff like that was really cool that they added in too. The only the only ones I didn't like, and it's not because the mechanic is wrong or something, but it's because of um, how you need to use them against flying enemies that move really, really far across the map, is how Arrow goes to a spot and then seems to erupt in that spot. So it's like the enemies need to be in... Ice kind of works the same way. Yeah, Blizzard so you, does the same thing. You shoot the ice spell, and then it's like it sits there for a second, and then it, bam! And anything in the AoE of the spell explosion, so to speak, gets hit by it. But if they move out of that area of effect, it's going to miss. And these freaking flying enemies that are weak to arrow just move so far around. And it's like, <laughs> I can't hit you with arrow because you move too much. Stop moving. And I can't get up there because I don't have Barrett in the party. So I can't shoot them from a distance. I'm just running underneath them, hoping that I can get underneath them and quickly jump up and hit them with one attack. <laughs> and then I keep running. So there were some enemies. It's mostly those, but some enemies that, Again, I, I've seen that uh, maybe above anything else, the combat has been praised in this game more than anything else. And I had some frustration, so I just wanted to bounce that off of right. you guys and, and kind of get your opinions. I, I think you do bring up some good points. And I do know that to some extent, I just need to get good. I, I tend to, <laughs> I tend, what I tend to do in games is I find a strategy that works for me and I kind of stick with it until the game makes you change yeah tactics. you can't do that in this game <laughs> and, you cannot and you, do that. you need you need to do a little more experimentation here <laughs> on that point though i do like that the game even if you do get a game over it feels like the game teaches you what you did wrong yeah even even though like sometimes the game can be really difficult i feel like they did a good job of balancing it to a way that it teaches you that hey i can't just go in full force i have to be defensive or i have to cast this kind of spell or i have to do this strategy and I like that because a lot of games that are action based are just go in, kill the enemy, you're done. And I, I don't think the remake did that. I think they did a really good job of making sure that you learn. Yeah, they're not punishing you for dying. They want you to go back and experiment and figure out what you did wrong. Yeah, there's not much of a penalty for losing. Right. And um, actually, that's kind of how FF13 was too. Right. And that, that was. <laughs> it might be <laughs> funny to say this that was probably the best thing about ff13 oh, I was agree. that whenever there was a hard boss fight i could just literally sit there and just practice it all day until i i figured it out and that was actually very rewarding sure. and the fact that they, that you have the level of depth that you have in this game where you can change up things in a really serious manner where as opposed to 13 you were very limited in what you could actually change and tweak about your characters they were sort of fixed in the certain ways. And so to have that freedom here where they just sit you right back outside of the fight and you try it as many times as you need to, to sort of learn it and then making assess actually very useful. Um, that combination for me, was very good. Mm. Okay. Let's move into the last thing I wanted to talk about here. And this is more story related stuff, things they either expanded on or, cut or changed or whatever and uh, how you guys feel about them I'm just going to bring up a couple things um, I liked the areas of expansion that I thought were good were moments like going up to the top plate and meeting Jesse's family and talking with Biggs and Wedge about her ambitions to be an actress and uh, her struggles in her home life um, the fact that her father was in an accident at a at a Mako reactor and is essentially a, a vegetable now. He's on life support. Um, these were really good ways to endear you, most specifically to the Avalanche members, and expand upon that in ways that that weren't in the original. 
So these were areas of expansion that I think were great, specifically because I knew what was coming up with the Sector 7 plate being dropped on Sector 7 and killing people. So they introduced you to a bunch of new NPCs, uh, Marl, the lady, the land lady, um, you know, all these different people in Sector 7 that, that you get to know, the little girl you find the cats for her, um, you know, a bunch of people. And I was like, okay, this is a really good idea. And then every single freaking one of these people survives the Sector 7 playful. <laughs> like literally every single one. Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah, just that like, was a great. it's like, dude, they erased all the consequence and all the power from possibly the most powerful moment of the entire Midgar arc. Arguably for me, it's the, um, es the es prison escape, quote unquote, in the Shinra mansion where, or not the mansion, the, the Shinra headquarters where you follow the trail of blood. To me, that's like uh, about the most powerful what the freak is going on moment of the original game. That's just been cut out entirely, which I was like, just, I could not believe. I could, I literally could not believe they cut that out. But the second for me was the Sector 7 plate falling, all those people dying and the camera pulling in and the music cuts out and it gets real quiet. And then you pull inside the window and President Shinra is just listening to that orchestra while like you see all these explosions and these people screaming and the, it's a really really powerful moment in the original mm. i felt like they robbed that moment of all of its power by letting literally every person you knew and care about survive at the time you don't realize the avalanche members are alive but they retroactively ruined that at the end, <laughs> when they reveal that they're possibly all still alive. I mean, it's kind of debatable with Jesse, right? You just see her little bandana, but it's like... Oh, you see her glove, too. Yeah, her glove and, and bandana on the table. So it's like, mm -hmm. is she alive? Wedge got, like, thrown out of a window, I guess, but is he still alive? Like, did he fall <laughs> and die? I don't know. Like, But the fact that he survived at all, it was like, to me, they just they robbed that moment of all of its power. I don't know how you guys felt about that scene. No, I, I definitely agree. I definitely agree. I would have to agree too. Okay, so so you're both on the same page, and and um and this kind of ties into the theme of the game too, right? Because because we talked about this a little bit earlier, where they've shifted it into the defying fate theme, which is a, a, a callback to FF13 and Kingdom Hearts. It's like that's this is all these guys seem to want to write about for some reason. It's all they can ever do in their <laughs> in their games. And in the original, it was it was about learning to value life. You know, uh, Sakaguchi in interviews talked about the th what's the core theme of Final Fantasy VII. He talks about life and death, but especially life is what he brings up. And I think what he means by that is learning to value life because it is precious and it is our mortality <laughs> um, mm -hmm. is a fragile thing. And you're going to lose people that you're very close to throughout this life. This is part of everybody's human experience. You're going to lose family members at some point, some way, somehow. You're going to lose friends. You're, people are going to die. You're going to have to come to terms with your own morality. You're going to have to accept that that is the fate of every living person. You're going to die someday. Uh, and, and this was tied into the planet as well. You know, like learning to value the planet's life and to not exploit it and to stand up to corporate greed. And all these things were kind of tied into that core thematic. That's really what the game was all about. And it's part of the reason why I think the ending is brilliant. A lot of people don't love the ending of the original game because they feel it's too open-ended. But to me, it's like that was, that was like the philosophical question that Bugenhagen was bringing up was like, 
valuing life and defending the planet's life, which we all return to and we're all a part of, we're all part of this cycle of life. That is what's most important. And whether the planet chooses that humanity is important for its continued existence is something we have to accept. Right. right? This is the right thing to do. So accepting that and, and whether or not the planet chose to erase humanity, I don't think it did. I think it was just showing that it, it overgrew Midgar itself and it overcame the, the corporatized exploitation. But abandoning this for what feels to me like an antithetical theme, a, the total opposite direction, which is I'm going to defy fate. I'm not going to accept the course. I'm going to do what I want to do. Feels like a betrayal of the, of the spirit of the original game's message. And that to me was the most disappointing thing. And the reason why I can't get on board with this game. And I saw elements of that, not just in the ending, but even in the, in moments like these, where the sector seven plate falls and all of the devastation that, and, and it could have been even worse because like you actually got to know Jesse and, and Biggs and Wedge better. You actually got to know these other characters. And I was just, I, I, again, I paused the game when, when it happened, when you, when you see Marl and the little girl with the cats and like literally every NPC that gave you a quest in sector seven in chapter three, they all get out. Everyone you care about survives the sector seven plate. And it's just like, man, they, they butchered that moment for me. And that was hugely disappointing. If you have any counterpoints to that, I know you guys said you agree, but I'd like to hear it because that was among the most disappointing parts of the whole game for me. I completely agree. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I completely agree if I'm just going to be honest. Um, I, I had made a video um, months back before the remake came out and it was titled something like um, the most devastating scene in Final Fantasy VII Remake's first game. Mm-hmm. And it was just my entire thesis on why the collapse of the Sector 7 plate was so important. And how uh, I talked about if like real world equivalent of if that many people die. I can't remember what city now. It was some city in China. But um, it was something like a population of like 20 million people. And I was just like, this is the biggest city in Gaia. And it's anywhere near the biggest city on Earth. And how big that would is. Like, this is how many people would be dying. This is how mortifying um, mm-hmm. this event is. Uh, well, they <laughs> they subverted me, I'll say that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Because I, I, I did sort of go in with that expectation. I think that a lot of people, um, or at least the ones that I've been talking to on Twitter or seeing some of the comments, is that they have this notion that um, that people who make these sort of criticisms are clinged onto the original and that is just so yeah. not the case i, I think, know i've been it, accused of that a bunch of times already for right. sure and, <laughs> and, and, yeah and, and, and me, me me and soldier that is just obviously not the case yeah. i mean we've embraced change more than anybody i mean maybe two years ago when this game was completely missing i was making videos about speculating on what i thought would be in there and how many things would change and I was all for it. I thought that the people handling it, uh, one of the battle planners for like Kingdom Hearts 2 and um, was was going to make at least combat feel better. Um, I was looking at the staff and I was like, okay, Nojima's returning and all that stuff is good. 
And so it feels weird to me that people think that because you're being negative on these certain things that you're necessarily just comparing it to the OG or clinged on to the OG. Some of the stuff is just objectively not good. In, or at least I, I feel that way. Yeah. Um, so I guess it's subjectively. But like when you get into stuff like fate and mm-hmm. destiny and defying that, I feel like you sort of counter some of the the overall meaning in Final Fantasy VII that seems to, if, if anything, if you wanted to tie fate into it, it would be more about accepting fate than defying it or coming to terms than it yeah. is about not coming to terms. Yeah. So to say, to have that there and be a center point about, you don't have to ever come to terms with anything. You could just change the future. <laughs> yeah. I, it- yeah. I view that as not appropriate for any story or any good story. Mm. Especially since like the idea of destiny or fate isn't real anyways, right? Like there is no such thing as a predetermined course that we are all on that we have to follow. Like we make choices every day. Destiny is a person, a corporation, a government. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Parents, it's it's expectation from a parent. It's that kind of thing. right? Right. I can see that. Right. But it's like an, it's another human being. It's not like a force. Yeah, like a, like a like a a deity or some kind of higher power, like compelling you on a course. Right. So and and on top of that, no one will ever know what their future holds. So you can't like defy the predetermined course. It just feels like a concept that is. Uh, I'll bring the term up again. Kind of anime in terms of like, <laughs> uh, it's it's like popularity or use. Right. After you've run out of ideas. Right. And it's actually true of comic books too, like alternate right. timelines. Oh and yeah, exactly. It and, it feels and, I always I always lose I always fall out of the comic book stories when they start diving into that. It's just like I have no interest <laughs> anymore because there it erases all the consequences. If there's a consequence like Thanos snapping and half the universe dying, the answer is always tra- time travel, go into <laughs> right. an alternate universe, and it's like then, then there's no consequences anymore. There's no stakes. You're right. What's because, the point? Yeah. I guess my thing is like, if you're going to change the consequence of one sequence, add in another consequence that equal, it is equal to or greater than that consequence. Sure. Yeah. Because make it look like it has a cause and effect. Okay. I saved all these people in sector seven. Well, now one of the people from sector seven is now like, a super villain or something or a super boss or something later in the story. It it has a a new consequence tied to it. Yeah. It has a new consequence. And I think for me, the whole thing of fate and destiny, that was never really what seven was about. And to inject that non-organically makes it feel forced, even if it was always there in the first place. Like if Mm -hmm. the concept was there in the first place, it still feels forced because it's like, I see this going one of two ways. They're going to do the old bait and switch. It's alternate timelines and it's this and it's that. And then they're going to do exactly the what the rest of the game is supposed to do. Follow the course of the original. And it's just going to be this weird plot device. Or they're going to Toriyama and Nomura and they're going to go completely off the rails using the seven universe as the basis for what they want to do. 
And that is actually what worries me. It's not the fact that they're going to try to throw this concept in. It's how they're going to tie that concept together to make it cohesive and coherent and not some cheap, well, let's just say it, cheap anime trick. Sure. <laughs> like, sure. It's, it, that's my concern. It's not that I don't want them to change this or that because I was happy with a lot of the changes. Yeah. It's the fact that you're going to take the core concept, the core theme and make it all sunshine and rainbows where no matter what you do, nothing you do has consequences. And that's not how stories work. It's not how real life works. Yeah. And the reason we enjoy these games is because the characters are relatable. I don't relate to somebody that can do no wrong. And if they do wrong, they have no consequences. I can't relate to somebody like that. Yeah. So the, the whole fundamental change in theme and atmosphere and everything else past chapter 17, it was like out of left field, and it just does not feel natural for this story. A hmm. uh, couple other places where I, I, I was puzzled by the choices. Um, I made a video called The Magic of Final Fantasy VII's Plot Twists, which was making or drawing a comparison between a stage magician and the sleight of hand that they use to keep your eyes off of what's really happening in the trick um, being like the key to the magic being like really cool um, to what storytellers do in the fact that they leave a trail of breadcrumbs that are hinting at the, the, the twist or where the story's going, but not in to such a degree. They don't point at it enough to where you can guess what's going to happen. And then when you get there, it doesn't feel contrived or arbitrary or like they pulled it out of left field. That's why a lot of plot twists fail because it's like, what? It, they, they add some new dimension or some new rule that had not ever been explained before just so that they can deus ex machina, you know, yeah. that's a situation. That's when they fail because they didn't do enough to leave the hints. But if they point at the hints too much, you guess where it's going. or you. And Final Fantasy VII probably more than any other video game I've ever played is the best at that technique because they, they point at the fact or they leave crumbs that something's not quite right with Cloud's story or something's not quite right with him, right? But they never draw enough attention to it to where you expect some, like that you don't trust him because the, they work tirelessly to make you believe and trust cloud i thought it was really clever that cloud gives the materia equipping tutorial at the beginning of the game they always turn to him for answers he always knows the insides and outs of shinra and soldier and everything else he's like the authority on all this stuff so that when you get to calm and he explains what happened in Nibelheim, i just believe everything he says right that's the mm. whole crux and one thing that maybe it doesn't matter because like we're saying they could just completely go a totally different direction with the story it's not really anymore like cloud's motivation does not seem to be i got to sell my settle my past and find out what happened with sephiroth it's like we have to change the future is now what their motivation is but they have way more instances where cloud has his little headache green tinted like memory lapse thing it happens i want to say like at least 10 or maybe a dozen times more than it does in the Midgar section of the original. And they have characters pointed out. Like, I think uh, Tifa says to Aerith, or maybe the other way around, hey, do you think Cloud's okay? Like, what's going on? Um, and it's like, they are making it very clear and obvious. Something's not right with this dude. 
Something's clearly wrong here. He's and then Hojo says to his freaking face that he was not in soldier. What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? You are ruining this plot twist. What are you doing? Because it was a huge bait and switch. Yeah. It's like, I believe Cloud. Cloud knows what's going on. I trust him. Then it's like, actually, no. Sephiroth, like, completely pulls the rug out from under you and gives you this half-truth about the whole thing. And it's like, oh my gosh, is he right? And you sit there and doubt it. And you're like, dang it, I don't know. And you're it's, in an RPG, <laughs> it's like the equivalent of doubting yourself. Like, yeah. oh my gosh, am I real? Like, what's going on? And then <laughs> the fact that they reversed that again and that it was, they they planted that, guy in the shinra uniform there the whole time and it just the 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 actual truth about what happened was so plausible and it felt like it was just under your nose the whole time i still watch people for the first time seeing that scene where cloud takes the helmet off and you realize he was there and they go they just wide-eyed like oh my gosh it's so simple it's it's that that's that's got that's that's it that's the truth and in order for that to work which again Maybe they don't care about because they're doing a totally different thing. But you have you have to make the player believe Cloud, and I feel like they've done so much damage to that of making him appear that there's something completely wrong with him. Especially when he starts like uh, being against his will, like walking toward the Genova specimen in the elevator, and he like passes out. Yeah, I feel like that is irreparably damaged. There's no way that they can pull that plot twist off, at least in the same way. Yeah, I, I, did you guys I, get that sense too? I feel like they're actually walking into it with the the notion that they can't pull off the same plot twist anymore. Like I feel like they yeah. feel like they 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 have to insert new shock value in order to generate the same responses that people had. Whereas, like you were saying, just giving more backstory to Jesse for that moment when it happens is already enough to reintroduce maybe not necessarily shock. But for it to really hit you and resonate with you, yeah. so I don't, I don't, I don't think that you have to necessarily come up with um, new twists that put the story in a completely different place or touch on yeah. things that don't really make sense within this world, and and that's just part of what frustrates me in the in the later half of the game is that they'll just do these sort of things that just make you sit there and question why they would try to almost go off in a different direction with something when yeah. it, it doesn't touch on the same themes anymore and not in a, the same way. Well, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you said yeah. that because I, it, it, there is also the interview with Kitase where he says, yes, the way that we introduced Sephiroth in the original was based on horror villains. I was inspired by Jaws to do this where you don't show the villain and you build a lot of mystery around him. And his answer was, but everyone knows Sephiroth now, so there's no surprise left in it. And <laughs> I have a couple of major gripes with that mindset. First of all, no, not everyone knows who Sephiroth is because not everyone who is playing this played the original. I know so many people who never played the original game and this is their first exposure to Final Fantasy mm, VII. Same. And they're going to have no freaking idea the context, just because I've seen a picture of Sephiroth online doesn't mean that they, I mean, I had seen him in trailers or in the manual of the game that didn't ruin the fact, you know, like people know what a shark looks like. That doesn't mean that they can't <laughs> withhold showing you Jaws for the purpose of suspense, right. right? So that didn't make sense to me. But also people, when they buy, this is actually something I want to post to you too. 
real quick, just a, a real quick answer. Mm. Is how important is being surprised to you, to your enjoyment of a story? I'll let you go first, Alex, if you want. <laughs> I, so certain things I, I like to be surprised about. Others I kind of like to know. Um, but I do think the first time I experienced something like the original where I, you know, the plot twist, I don't want to know those things. I think that's super important to be surprised because that's, that is the whole, oh my God moment. Yeah. As opposed to, oh, well, okay, that's kind of cool. I get it. You know, it's not, that is your shock factor. That is going to be your selling moment. When people talk about your game, that is going to be your moment. And if you take that moment away with cheap parlor tricks or, you know, how they did with Hojo where they pulled him away with fake ghosts, mm-hmm. the damage is done. Now people will see, well, Hojo just said he wasn't soldier. Hojo would know he's the leader of the science program. Yeah. So I, that part I didn't really care for, but I don't know if it was because of the twist or if it was because of the plot ghosts. Mm. Um, but I do think it is important to be surprised because there are moments that lose their lose their gravity if you don't present them in a certain way. For sure. And now I feel like they're in the last couple chapters, they've really sold themselves on that this is a sequel. Yeah. So so plot twists don't the same plot twists don't matter to them now. Yeah, because it's it's it might not even happen at all. Yeah, so, exactly. So it may not, you know, we may never have that reveal with Cloud. We may never have that, you know, the plot twist with Zach. Zach may be our partner for some inexplicable reason. So so here's the reason why I asked that question. Because, yes, had that moment been spoiled for me in the original, like, that's an irreplaceable moment. I'm actually a person who's very... I, I generally don't care about spoilers. Uh, I knew the ending of this game before I played it. Like, and mm-hmm. it didn't bother me. Well, it bothered me that what they changed, but it didn't bother me that I knew before I played it, is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Generally, that's not to say in every case. Because if I had known Cloud was the, the, the Shinra infantry dude, it would have ruined it completely. I, I'm totally on board with that. But there are some things where it doesn't bother me too much to know some of the details before I play it. Because in, in, at this time of my life, I'm actually more interested in sort of like analyzing and diving into and deconstructing storytelling than I am in just the experience of going through the story. But that being said, um, having already played the game and known this, is it is it more important to you to be surprised in the remake story so that it justifies taking away some of these plot uh, points of the original that were like the crux, the most impactful, the most powerful parts. Would you be happy? I, I, I'm guessing I'm answering my own question because I think I know where you guys are coming from, but hopefully you know where I'm getting to. Mm. Some people, it seems to me, are happy that they're changing it because they're just, they want to be surprised by a new story and they yeah. don't want to re experience the original one beat for beat. In my opinion, Surprise is not as important as being faithful to the powerful messages of the original game. And re-experiencing those can be a really, really great experience, too, even if you know where it's going. So the the mindset from him that, oh, but it's not going to be a surprise, so we need to change it. It's like, well, then 
don't remake a game. If you think that it's not, if you think that re-experiencing something isn't as good or isn't as impactful because it's, you know where it's going, it's not surprising anymore, then make a new story with new surprises and twists. But right. the purpose of remaking a game is to, one, allow people who never experienced it before to have a chance to do that the way it was, or two, let people re-experience it because they want that. They want to see how, I can't even tell you how many people I saw saying, I can't wait to see how they handle the cross-dressing scene. Right. The fact that they knew there was cross-dressing in it didn't matter. They were still eager to see how it would be done here. Right. I was eager to see how the trail of blood leading up to the Shinra mansion would be handled, <laughs> and they just took it out. I was eager to see what it would be like in this version to have Cloud take off his helmet and you go, holy crap, he was really there the whole time. That's possibly no longer even in the game. Right. And, and I don't get actually, that. That's actually one of the scenes I'm worried about. It's the Nibelheim reactor incident. Like, How are they going to do that? Yeah, how is that going to be presented in a way that's like shocking? But I think Genesis shows up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> don't you put that in? I don't know, Frick. man. It's I out there. God that happens. You know, I was, I was even joking on my channel. I was like, you guys don't be surprised if Tifa dies, because if they if they value shock, if they value shock value, it's Era, it's surprise for surprise sake. Yeah. There's so, no there's no purpose to it other than to shock you. And I just find yeah. that to be a really weak reason yeah. to make changes. I, I'm, it's more important to shock you than it is to tell a good story. Right. And that, that bothers me a lot. Like, yeah. it's okay to re-experience something where you already know it's coming because you're going to do it a little bit differently and, and you want to see it in the new light. But, it's, but be yeah. faithful to it, right? Yeah. And that's how I felt about, like I said, the plate dropping, Cloud's constant freaking, like, memory lapses, uh... Of course, the ending, but then removing the scene where they get captured and then they have to follow the trail of blood. It was like that was possibly my favorite moment of the entire Midgar arc, and it's just gone. And they replaced it with a two-hour dungeon. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, man, it, I feel I feel very mixed on that too because on one hand, it it sucks, like it just hard sucks. But then on the other hand too, I, I feel like it's something that they necessarily had to do. Because even if they wanted to put it in, I'm sure that the dev team actually did. I'm sure that they went to Square's higher ups and they'd be like, no, that's going to push the game to an M. We want a more mass uh, market product at T. And that's what they did. Mm. So I, I find I find it hard to be critical on that as much as I dislike it, knowing that it may have not been an artistic decision. Do you or, know what the right? actual ESRB rules are regarding blood because if it's just blood splattered on the walls they're do you think ambiguous that that, do you, do you think that that would have gone to m really not like actually seeing a guy get sliced in half and blood guys are shooting out of him obviously that's m but if there's <laughs> yeah. just if there's just blood on the floor or blood on the walls do you really think it would have gone to an m rating um blood is very ambiguous with how the esrb handles it they for splats for sure like if there's blood splatting that's an automatic m rating um, in terms of like blood on the floor, uh, that was left really, really ambiguous as to whether or not it would violate um, the teen rating standard. And I, I tried to just quickly memorize any T-rated game that I played that had any sort of blood out. And in recent memories, unless we go all the way back to PS1 and 64, mm -hmm. um, I, I genuinely can't remember... Um, this, this something will probably occur to me after I leave this, but sure. in, in in my in my short term memory, I was thinking that hmm, there's just not too many T rated games where you do actually see blood. Is, is that the reason? I don't know. 
Hmm. Okay. We've been going for almost three hours. Are you guys <laughs> cool if you stick around for just a couple questions from Patreon? Before oh, yeah, of course. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. I'm sorry that I literally went twice as long as I was intending to. Oh, no worries. <laughs> no, but this, this has been a good this conversation. Feel good. I was supposed to be working today, and I had a lazy day. So this okay. makes me feel... <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I appreciate yeah. it. So um, I'm not going to be able to get to all these, and I apologize to any of the patrons, because you guys always ask great questions. We always get like six to ten paragraph long questions <laughs> with tons of context and a lot of thought and effort put into them and i i, I really appreciate you guys but i can't uh we we've been going for so long i can't do that today so let's just get to a couple of them um please comment on the difference between classic ff7 and the seeming kingdom hearts okay we already did that one we're good there not counting the characters who were non-existent before like jesse who do you guys think got the best treatment in remake uh, the best treatment in remake. Personally, I think Tifa was pretty perfect. Her VA was probably the best of the new bunch. This comes from Bishop Hunter. I'm Cloud. I'm all the way Cloud. Who do you guys <laughs> think got the best treatment in the remake? Uh, Cloud. Cloud Cloud is the character that's most often misunderstood. And mm -hmm. to have him in his actual state, man, he has so many uh, just great lines that actually make me laugh or just make me feel like I'm him in this situation. And that's how he is in the original game. And they actually nailed that in the remake. How about you, uh, Soldier? I, now I might be a little biased here, but uh, <laughs> Cloud, definitely. Yeah. Because I felt like even though he was supposed to be this serious character, you know, he's a mercenary, he's a former soldier. Uh, he wasn't afraid to be goofy either at times. And I thought that they captured that really well from the original because there's some things that, you know, in the original that are kind of goofy, kind of funny that, you know, it's out of character for Cloud. And I, I thought that they really amplified that. Like there's a there's a part where you're in the apartments and Cloud goes to draw his sword on what he thinks is Sephiroth. And he pulls his sword out and hits the door frame, And he just looks back and has like this look on his face like, oh, I just messed up. And it's, it's supposed to be a serious moment, but in that serious moment was just like this hint of humor. And I just thought that was great. I thought they did a really good job with Cloud and his voice actor did a phenomenal job of that arrogant, you know, mercenary. But at the same time, when he needed to be tender towards like Aerith or Jesse or Tifa, he could pull that out of the hat and really just have a multifaceted character that you didn't really see a whole lot when it came to like the extended works, like the compilation and kingdom hearts. So I really liked what they did with cloud in that aspect. Um, this actually kind of dovetails off of that. Um, this question is from hat 89. How do you feel about cloud uh, being able to stand toe to toe with Sephiroth? at this stage of the game, right? Technically, this is still, like, the beginning of the journey. He hasn't, like, fully powered up yet, so to speak. He hasn't had his moment of introspection where he realizes who he really is. He hasn't... His search for identity has not taken place yet. The fact that he is standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with Sephiroth <laughs> in essentially the early game. So, it seems like Sephiroth is not actually trying to kill him anyways. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah, because he, he, he sort of makes a point that we're at the end where he says, I'm not going to end and I'm not going to have you end. So yeah. Sephiroth really didn't have 
least in this new story and how things are building up, Sephiroth has no intention on killing Cloud. So for him to basically hold back, um, it really just seemed like it was like a very big psychological trick rather than um, a power scaling inconsistency. Or like, I'll yeah. indulge you because you're so insistent on fighting me, but right, whatever, I'm not going right. to so it didn't come off with that as that. Uh, I think within the new context that they have, it makes sense. But if you want to okay. argue that it do- does or doesn't make that the context <laughs> itself does or doesn't make sense, then that's, that's another a totally different. Thing. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So so uh, the con- I I want to kind of extend on the context of it. I felt like for me. Yeah, Sephiroth was toying with him. Yeah, it was kind of like, you know, I have plans for you kind of thing, so I can't kill you yet, or I'm not going to kill you. Um, But for me, I felt like from a game design-wise, I know they needed a final boss that, you know, is is this powerful being, and it needs to feel like a full RPG. But at the same time, this is a guy that you're not supposed to fight until the very end of the game, Mm. like the very end of the story. And now it's like, well, I know this this character is powerful, and now Cloud standing toe to toe with him, Advent Children style, jumping off buildings and bricks and pieces all over the place, and it makes Cloud look more powerful than he should. And that's where I didn't really care for it was the fact that Cloud himself looked. He's a level one hundred character jumping around all those yeah. buildings and stuff. <laughs> like advent children cloud in that moment and i didn't like that because i felt like that was like how do you go from here into part two and say well this sweeper enemy is now stronger than the sephiroth you just fought yeah or stronger than fate and destiny i'm I'm actually really curious about how they're going to handle carrying over anyways because i i assume they'll probably start you at level one again kind of like a mass effect one to two thing right I i i don't suspect especially with many people now having PS4s, and I assume this will be on PS5. I'm, I, it'll probably have, it'll probably be released on both, like multiplat PS4 and PS5. But what I'm saying is, is that I would be surprised if they allowed you to carry over data. Your level, because you can get to level 50 in this game. Yeah. Like your level, all your materia leveled up the way it was. I just don't see that happening. So the fact that Cloud is essentially a level 100 character in the cutscene a level potential 50 character while you're fighting this boss with level three magic spells that you didn't get until late game in the original that you have literally at the beginning of the story. I am very curious as to how they're going to parse that, how they're going to make that make any sense. I actually have a theory. So have you played the new threat mod for final fantasy seven? No, I haven't yet. I I was going to make that my next playthrough. So there's not to spoil it for you, but there's a, I believe it's right after calm. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yuffie steals all of your equipment, or steals all of. Oh, your, right, right after yeah. the calm uh, flashback. Yeah. So yeah. they exit calm, and then I think there's an interaction with Yuffie, and she steals all your stuff. So I think if they are actually taking notes from the community, that and they do want to introduce Yuffie in part two, that could be a write-in for them That's to do that. An interesting I, theory. I almost don't know if they're going to though, because it almost seems either a too obvious. <laughs> Or be cheap. Yeah. Like, I don't know how they Like a cheap that. way of... of um, well, it's kind of like uh, the Metroid games, right? Like, you start off, usually in the first level, you have all your equipment. And then they seem to find a way to rid you of all of your equipment. And then the whole game is you going around collecting it. And that's how you get powerful again. Like God Maybe of War. 
Yeah, yeah, maybe it's the same concept. It's like they're going to allow you to carry your materia over, but they're going to steal it and you'll have to get it back from her throughout the whole game. And then See, she'll I become part of your party at the end. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily mind that, I guess. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to see it how they present it first okay. before I was like making a judgment on it. I'd rather have a balanced game than, me too. Uh, than uh, something that just allows me to feel good about carrying stuff over. <laughs> yeah. But at, at, at the end of the day, if they feel like they can't do it, my hope is that they won't do it. Yeah. Okay. Another question here from Chris Krause. And again, sorry, patrons, that I'm not reading your whole comment because you have really great stuff to say, but we just kind of kind of get to the question. Just get to the point. Okay, Chris asks, how would you do an alternate parallel reality story of Final Fantasy VII that feels true to the spirit of Final Fantasy VII? I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I genuinely don't know what else to tell you. I, just, I really would not do it. I, 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 I am... By and far, not a writer, but if I was, I would never tell an alternate reality story. I just wouldn't do it. I, you know, what's funny. <laughs> I, I literally was trying to think of something profound to say, and the only thing that could come to my mind was, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I wanted to, I wanted to like give that a very heartfelt response and be like, oh, okay, here is how I'd actually approach it. But it's genuinely speaking, I would never do that. Yeah, I think that's the <laughs> default answer. Yeah. But in order to make even just the slightest attempt to try, and I know this is going to be terrible, I will. I liked what what Pat said earlier about those like alternate takes on like Greek myths. You know mm. how um, uh, the 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 original versions of them cast the heroes in a certain light, and then the poet sort of like took an alternate look at the at the characters and, and ask questions. If there's a way to do it like that, where you can essentially have the same event happen, but mm. you show it under a different lens that gives it a little bit of a different perspective, uh, an alternate perspective that maybe changes the context of it in some way. To me, that would really be the only interesting way to do it, where you can at least examine the same themes, but like with additional perspectives or additional questions rather mm. than just erasing the original story and like taking it whatever direction you want. So here's actually a thought about now that I've had a little time to think about it. Uh, what if they, the only way that I could see that possibly being a good idea is if with this whole fate and destiny and alternate timelines thing or whatever, alternate universes, let's say show it in a way that no matter what, you'll always they'll that they'll always find a way for those things to happen regardless. So like, I don't want to use final destination, but that's the only movie that I can think of that actually, <laughs> you know, where they escape that, that they, they cheat death and eventually it works out anyway that they all die regardless, maybe in different ways, but that's the only way I can really see them doing this alternate universe thing where they can show like, here's the lesson you need to learn. You can try to fight it. You can try to kill destiny, quote unquote, but you're always going to meet that end somehow. Right. And like with Zach. So the, the big thing is that Zach might be alive. They emphasize the chip bag thing that it's an alternate universe. Make it so that Zach still dies 
and has that emotional impact, but don't make it to where it's like this cheap, oh, I'm from an alternate timeline coming to tell you the future, or I'm coming to help, <laughs> I'm coming to fight the boss fight with you, and then I'll go back to my timeline. Make it have a consequence, because by taking away a consequence, you need to replace it with another. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way I can think of to do an alternate universe that makes sense and actually is kind of cohesive and works with what you've got. And actually has stakes and conflict. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. The way they're headed towards now, like you said with the uh, Sector 7 plate, in the original, you didn't know how many people died. You just knew it was a lot. Now it looks like everybody survived. So what was the whole point of dropping the plate? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shinra just lost money. That's all. <laughs> yeah, that's it all that's hurt true. Shinra more than it hurt the player. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because yeah, exactly. the as far as the player is concerned, anyone they cared about is still alive. So they yeah. they lost the bar. They'll rebuild. They'll rebuild it. You know they talk about. Yeah. It. Okay. Two more questions. Uh, first one from Dude McGuy. He says much of the game's controversy seems to be revolving around the twist of Sephiroth and the Arbors of Fate. However, I'd like to ask the panel about the thought of bringing characters back from the dead, death, fake out, quote unquote, scenes and how that affects the player's experience with the story in general. So I think he's referring to Barrett being stabbed and then coming back to life. So I actually, I I do think that there are some parallels with other character deaths in that scene. So I, with Barrett, I think everybody knew he wasn't going to die. Like, I think that was just one of those things where like, oh, it's shock factor. But if you notice the way that scene plays out, is the exact same way the City of the Ancients plays out. Sephiroth comes in, kills the character, Genova boss fight, result. The result's different, but the setup and the lead-up to it is the exact same. So it, it just, for me, it's like, yeah, they do need to have Shock Factor, bring characters back from the dead. I thought in that moment that was a good way to do it, I wish that it didn't involve the arbiters of fate. Sure. I, I don't know how you could have written that scene without the, the arbiters of fate, but I feel like they could have figured that out, you know, in but a different way. Yeah. In a different way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, um, go ahead, uh, Prince. Oh, I was, I was going to say that's sort of an example of them valuing that shock value more than actual, just, coherently giving you the story and mm-hmm. and the and the payoffs and explaining why this is they just sort of stat barracks because they know that's going to make you like what and then they undo any consequence that ever had <laughs> like yeah. within the same five minutes it, it feels silly because it's the epitome of this idea we're talking about about how when fate is involved mm. it just there's right, no but, conse- there's no consequence um, to anything <laughs> so I may, I don't know if I'm the only one that feels this way. I don't feel that necessarily everyone who died in the original has to die in the remake. Sure. But I, I do feel like if you revoke all death, you just revoke all stakes. Right. Like, let's say yeah. Wedge had survived and you still have the whole dungeon where you go in to rescue him underneath uh, Sector 7. But Perfect. It, you keep Jesse and Biggs dead, please. Right. <laughs> and, and, and then you bring can, some <laughs> consequence to this, please. Right. <laughs> and then, then you can, and, and and in fact, you can actually keep them alive so that they that they can have a new arc on their own and and realize that oh, I have like a sense of guilt maybe about them dying yeah. in that accident, and so that builds onto that character. 
Well, so in, in that sense, right, keeping a character alive to do that type of stuff, perfect. I have no complaints. But when you just keep everybody alive to keep all the fans of the characters happy, <laughs> that's when I think yeah. it becomes more a fan service than, than actual storytelling. Well, I feel like, and sorry, this is going on so long. I just want to say this real quick. I feel like <laughs> they really neutered Barrett's character arc in this way because, like, so much of his character arc was realizing the suffering that he caused the people that died under his watch, so to speak. And, and that he was doing this not because he wanted to save the planet, but because he was hell bent on revenge on Shinra. And he's like, yeah, it's cool to say that I'm doing this for the planet, but I realize I did not go about that the right way. And I know that, uh, you made a video on this soldier and some other people did too, about the, the question in the original game about whether or not, um, Shinra blew up their own reactor or not, or, uh, whether or not, um, the, the bomb's yield was supposed to be as big as it was. And there's that, that quote from uh, Jesse when you go back to the hideout and she's, she's a bit surprised by the yield of the bomb. Um, personally, my reading of this is, when, especially when you talk to her directly after that line, she talks about how proud she was. Uh, and, and Barrett talks about, as soon as they get off the train, going back to Sector 7, how um, the next one's going to be even bigger. Like, don't get scared now. We're going to, you know. Yeah, I remember that. The intention was absolutely to destroy the reactors on Avalanche's part. And whether or not they did is, I mean, without asking, I wouldn't trust Tetsuya Nomura, but Hirano Sakaguchi, let's say, whether or not that was actually the case in the original, we can't know for sure. I guess there's always a possibility that they had intended that uh, Shinra was the ones who did it. But to me, at least, the way it's handled here, uh, with the with the president coming in front of him in the in the hologram and gl and essentially gloating that or no no it's not president it's it's Heidegger, gloating about like you're not in control we will determine whether the bombs go off or not, it, it made it really clear, also that because Barrett asked or tells Jesse do you think you overdid it a bit and she's sitting there stressing out like it should not have been like that, they changed Avalanche's intention to where they meant to disable, not destroy. And while in a post 9-11 world, I, I can see the potential controversy they might be trying to avoid with this change. This on top of the fact that not very many people in the team died or none of them did. Barrett doesn't have a lot to feel guilty about now. Whereas in the original, he really, really, really did. And so I feel like it hurts his arc in the long term. I know that's kind of a side point, but uh, no, I, com uh, I completely understand where you're coming from. Yeah, or, I get that. Okay, um, last question. This comes from Greg Troyan, and he wanted us to touch on the meta element. Well, I know we've we've referenced it a bit, but I don't know if we've um, really like dug into it. Uh, where possibly the the ghosts the arbiters of fate or whatever they represent in the meta element of the story, the purest original fans of the game wanting this pure faithful one-to-one -one recreation of this game that they had and the entire f defying fate theme 
being pulled out, out of that into Nomura himself feeling the pressure to do that, but wanting to free himself of that expectation. Um, I've seen people like Jim Sterling and other like big YouTubers say that they, they like that because they also liked that sort of meta element in The Last Jedi, for instance, um, where, <laughs> where Kylo Ren says, destroy the past, kill it, whatever. Right. And, and that that's almost like the creator speaking to the audience saying, forget the past. This is Star Wars needs to go in a new direction. Right. There are some people that love the concept of like not following tradition or not following the norm or not feeling tied down to doing something because they feel pressured or that, that they have to do it this way. And that the, the meta story happening there is clever. What what say you? Do, you? do you agree at all with that? So I, at one point, I do understand because I think me, both me and Prince, when we were advocating for change in the game, we both got a lot of comments of, well, we don't want them to change this. We don't want them to change that. If they don't put this in the game, it's not really Final Fantasy VII. And we got those a lot. And it's like, you look at it, and I can't imagine with our viewer base how much you can add to that for the entire company hearing all this stuff all the time. Sure. You know, you get on social media and every Twitter post is, Hey, uh, we're releasing final fantasy seven remake on such and such day. Well, what about data transfer? What about this? What about carrying over? What about, you know, this being in the game or they're going to ruin this part of the game. And it's like to hear those things all the time at a greater level than even we hear it. That is got that does have to have a lot of pressure, and plus they already know the pressure of this. So I see why that they, I kind of see why they put like a plot element and a meta into it. I wish that meta had been handled better. Mm. If it if it had been written better or had just been, hey, you know, we're gonna go in this direction. We hope you guys will follow us. You know, I think it would have been more than just. I guess a lot of fans are seeing the arbiters of fate as that, that if they are seeing it as that's them, then they're thinking that square Enix is thinking that they're evil for being fans. Yeah. Like it, like it's giving them <laughs> the middle finger. It's just, yeah, just flipping off the fan, the purist fans. Right. I don't personally yeah. feel that way. Cause I don't think I don't consider myself a purist. Yes. I do want things preserved that preserve the story, but I don't see myself as somebody that's like, so, in my own head about things that I can't accept any change. But I do right. see where some people might be a little upset with the fact that they've been relegated to a plot point. And uh, I don't know. I just, it, for me, it's like the plot ghost just didn't need to be there in the first place. Yeah. yeah. They could already do whatever they wanted. That's what I don't understand. <laughs> they could already do whatever they want. The plot ghosts are proof that they could already do it. <laughs> so they so don't just do it. That. They don't need to. Yeah. You don't That's need to good justify. Point. You don't need to justify yourself for why you're doing it. You can just do it. You made it. Just do it. Yeah, I agree uh, with that uh, yeah. in a huge way. I think that yeah. it's really silly. Yeah. Um, um, go ahead. Go ahead first. Yeah. Um, I think what they were trying to do is cool. I think that like if we were out at a bar and we were having a couple of drinks and you were telling me that there would be like, you're going to add like a meta narrative uh, element to your game and it's going to be the fan base and they're never going to be satisfied. And after a few drinks, I probably think, Hey man, I think that's a cool. Idea. 
and it it, it kind of sounds like it, right? It's it's only when you get into the deeper details of how they handled it and how crucial it's going to be for the story going forward, and the fact that it's an unavoidable part of the story, and that now it's branching things off into multiple timelines that is just bound to be convoluted and not have nearly the payoff that it could have had by not having those things. It just seems strange to me that they would go ahead with it. Um, I like uh, meta-narrative elements. I think they're pretty cool. I think that um, also just like when developers put their own personal taste into things, like Yoko Taro, for example. Mm. Um, there is this scene where um, 2B is like struggling. I can't remember what exactly happened to her. Um, I believe it was like the result of a virus or something that 2B had. And 2B is just like struggling. And like, it's actually a very hard segment because she can't fight. And there's all these enemies. So you actually have to like walk around the enemies. And it's somewhat tedious to do. And Yoko Taro's explanation for it is, I was feeling depressed that day when I wrote it. So mm. I just wanted the player to feel what I was feeling. <laughs> it's kind of an Evangelion thing too, right? Like yeah. the, the creator of Evangelion went through some really severe depression. And that's why like the second season changes so dramatically in style and like theme and message. Or the second half of it, I guess, not second season. But, right. Yeah. And so I, I actually, <clears throat> actually really enjoy when a developer or a writer is implementing what's going on in their life into like the story because sure. then it it almost maintains a sense of authenticity yeah, because it feels it's very the, real right and they they almost instinctively know how to write it because they're feeling it mm -hmm. and so that stuff is cool and i can imagine that they really were feeling what you would imagine the watchmen of fate arbiters of fate that they they call them now I can imagine that they felt that pressure to keep everything exactly the same. It's just that when it comes down to it, the whispers end up breaking the plot. And that's when I think that any meta narrative thing is going to be bad is when it's just going to go in there and change all the themes, change the message of the story and do those things. And people, people, again, they, they harp on the fact that, you just don't like that it's different or that it's the OG or it's not the OG. Totally, totally not the case. I have to say, all. as somebody yeah. who's watched both of your content, that that's ludicrous to say about you guys. Completely <laughs> ludicrous. They, it's, they it, say that. They it say applies that. a yeah. little more to me, but yeah. I am trying to tell you that yeah. I at least enjoyed giving you more time with Avalanche so that when the plate fell and they died, it would be more devastating. There was potential yeah. for that as an expansion. That's, I'm that's where I thought they were heading with that. it. Yeah, I was totally open to that, right? I thought that would be a great expansion on the original story. There's definitely a lot you could do there. I also was, in my initial reactions to trailers and stuff, really hopeful that this emphasis on the fact that what Avalanche is doing is wrong, even if they're doing it for the right reasons, with Tifa being like, I just really don't know about this. Like, I just don't agree that this is the right way to do it. And like them having to grapple with the fact that they murdered people. But yeah. that's all erased because Shinra did it, not them. Like, see, I'm open to this. <laughs> I'm open right. to expanding it, but just don't. Then like, right. just do the one thing that like ruins the whole power of it. That's all <laughs> right. I'm saying. But change, I'm open to but the change expansion. it to something better, right? You know? Yes, emphasize it more. Don't rob it of its power at the last second or by changing the one thing. 
all in the pursuit of, I guess, some false flag operation where Shinra wants to go back to war with Wu Tai. Why? I don't know. They already beat them and crushed them and to beat them to a pulp and they <laughs> have no military left. Like, why do they want to go to war with Wu Tai again? I don't get it. They, I, I, they didn't even make an attempt to explain that. It's like you, you could even just say we had a treaty where we promised to end the war, uh, cease fire. They demilitarize, but we don't put any Mako reactors in Wutai. Yeah. Now they're saying, I want to put a Mako reactor in Wutai. So now we're going to start a war by pinning all of these things, all these terrorist attacks on Wutai. Bam. Now we can go build our Mako reactor in Wutai. That's literally as e that's, that's so easy to do, but they don't even try to explain what, and, yeah. <laughs> and in the process, they take all the culpability off of avalanche for those Mako reactor explosions and all the people that suffered and died for it. And so it's like, anyways, ugh. yeah. All right. <laughs> they, they, they may go further into, um, with what's going on with Wutai and, uh, that stuff in later parts. I, sure. I certainly hope that they do. Uh, that would actually be really interesting. I will say that I found it very realistic and believable that they would try to blame a foreign nation or a foreign entity for these uh, sure. bombings and try to connect it to that, that, that stuff actually did hit for me pretty hard um, because it's, it's very reminiscent of, of things that you may have seen throughout history happen. So that, that part I actually did enjoy, but like you said, uh, they could have maybe fleshed that out or shown that. You know, you one thing I really did like too, I don't know how you guys felt about this as another expansion thing that I liked was those like that VR simulation. And when you're on the tour of like Shinra headquarters and they yes. go into that room and they're showing, this is what the agents were like. And they oh, harvested yeah. Mako like this and Mako energy. And now we're building it, it. That was of all the, of all of the original themes that I think they did preserve here. It was this, um, well captured critique of corporate greed right like that is still very very well retained and it's even i think stronger in the remake because what that felt like to me is we have disney which is on the verge if not already a monopoly on the entertainment industry and there's just a lot about that that is troublesome but you mm. go to disneyland or disney world and the face of this company is just this pure magic and good intentions and family friendly fun. And like you, 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 when you're there in the park, like it's, you can't be upset. <laughs> it's just, it's the happiest place on earth and it just feels so magical. But what's happening behind the face is really kind of messed up and really troubling. That's why I thought stamp was a really good idea. Yeah. And, and they captured that really well in that scene in the Shinra, like that presentation felt Disney-esque to me. It was yeah. like, it painted Shinra in this way to where it's like, oh yeah, I'm on board with this. I love that this they actually showed <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love that they actually showed Neo Midgar too. Yeah. I thought that was really cool and I actually so when I saw that uh, cutscene of the Ancients I actually messaged Prince and I was like, dude, you need to get to Shinra HQ right now. Yeah, <laughs> because I, the one thing that I wanted in this game, other than like the obvious stuff, was the ancients to be expanded upon and yeah. Genova and that that relationship that those two entities have that happened, you know, thousands of years ago or whatever. Mm. And when they when I saw that cut scene and I saw the ancients and saw how they lived and 
the idea that Shinra was using that as their image for Neo Midgar. Like, I'm not going to lie. I got really emotional about it because that's something that I had always wanted. Mm. And, and they actually did it. And I'm hoping that in future parts, when Aerith will start talking about her heritage or, you know, Bugenhagen or any of these other characters that know about the Cetra, I'm hoping that we get more of that, especially yeah. in scenes like with Ifalna and Gast, where they yeah. explained it. So I really, really hope they hammer that home. Yeah, I agree. That's a, that's another area for expansion that I think is uh, a, a good place to to really like build on the story is what really happened with the Cetra and Genova. Like, how did that all go down? Right, man. There's well, so many areas that aren't time travel that you can that you can expand. Okay. Um, well, look at Wu Tai too. <laughs> Wu Tai, how organically could you write Yuffie into the storyline and not make her optional this time by using Wu Tai now? Sure. And now that they've proven that they want to establish that relationship between Shinra and Wu Tai, write Yuffie into this organically for the love of God, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, just as a last word on the meta element, right? Um, I respect anybody because there seems to be a lot of people who are into it. And I respect, I respect the opinion that you dig the concept of the meta element and that you sympathize with the position that Nomura and company are in, in terms of probably the most hyped, most anticipated remake project of all time and how impossible it's going to be to please everyone, right? Like, if you sympathize with that and you find that, that sneaking that into the meta element of the story in some way is clever. I respect that you that you like it and that you find it's clever. I personally don't. I find it to be self-indulgent on Nomura's part to take a story that was not about any of that and make it about himself. Like, I'm going to make a story, I'm going to co-opt this story that everyone grew up loving and was so anticipated about and i'm going to work into there a message about me and about what i'm going through and what i'm struggling with i i can't think of a more and i i, I don't want to say this in a mean way like like that the or, or in a way to where I, i'm um calling him a bad person or anything like that that's not the intentional i'm saying i just find it to be an arrogant thing to do to think yeah. that your struggle with creating a video game is a more important message than what the original game's message was, which was far more relevant and applicable to everybody. And I, I just, I just find it to be, I don't know, very, like I said, self-indulgent. Like he's, he's looking at himself. It's mm -hmm. more about him than it is about recreating this beautiful experience for the fans. Go ahead with what you're going to say. Um, I was going to say that um, some people like to shift that blame toward Nojima. Yeah. Uh, because he worked as the scenario writer mm -hmm. and that's fine. But I just want to throw out there that if you shift the blame to Nojima or you say that Nojima wrote the original story mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, because he's writing this scenario for this game, it's all it's all his idea and he can do whatever he wants with it. I just want to say he wrote the Final Fantasy X audio drama and he also wrote Final Fantasy X 2.5, in which case uh, 
inside of that, uh, Titus's head gets blown off by an exploding blitz ball. So yeah. even the best creator uh, doesn't strike uh, every time. <laughs> yeah, I, there's, yeah, man, like I've made some really stupid videos. Like I've, I've I've really done Me some too. stuff that I look back on. It's like I regret that. That was freaking stupid. That was a bad idea. I should yeah. not have done that. Right? Like everybody is going to have missteps at some point. So, like, just because this guy did this doesn't mean this is going to be great, too, right? And I feel that way about, say, like, to, uh, Takahashi, um, Tetsuya Takahashi, creator of Xenogears, right? I think Xenogears is as brilliant a story as I've ever seen in a video game. I really love Xenoblade Chronicles. I felt Xenoblade Chronicles 2 was a just a wholesale swing and a miss <laughs> embarrassingly bad i do not like it at all of course that's my opinion but what i'm trying to say is like and, and this is the other element of it too a lot of people want to shift blame onto kojima as the scenario writer right so it's like well he's the writer so the story was his no the director is still in charge of everything and if the scenario writer comes to you with this idea and it's a bad idea the the, the director doesn't go oh well you're the writer so like I guess it's in there. I can't do anything about it. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. It's well, the director's I, job right. to keep everyone on vision and to well, say, like, this is a that. bad idea. I'm whipping you into shape. Do not do this. Please change this. <laughs> so it's ultimately the director's responsibility what ends up in there. It's yeah. always the director's fault um, to when, some degree. Uh, 15's uh, team was demoralized, Tabata, one of the things that he told them was don't worry about whether your job is good or not, or like whether you do a good job or not, because I'm going to be the one that takes the fall for it. Yeah. And that's and I, what, I, yeah. that's what you accept when you step right. into that position of director that, or producer. Right. That that's what being a director is all about. Mm -hmm. Well, and you can tell this whole story was a collaborative effort anyway. It's not just Nojima writing it because he, you know, he's like, well, let's just put plot ghosts in there. <laughs> Nomura, yeah. Nomura, Toriyama, Nojima, even, you know, Hamaguchi, there yeah, are, Hamaguchi. there are elements of each one of their different styles of storytelling in this game. And it's very apparent, especially in the later chapters, you know, fate, that's clearly a Toriyama love child, you know, the whole big battle against a giant monster that is fate, I guess you'd call the heartless it heartless monster. Yeah. The heart, <laughs> that's clearly Nomura. Yeah. You know, Nojima is clearly the characters and the scenarios and who these characters are, what they do and stuff like that. So, I mean, you can feel each one of their influences. So to put blame on just one guy, I feel is never it's never productive. Oh, absolutely. And 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 I want to also say, because sometimes the opposite, uh, someone will will put all the blame on a director when they don't like something. But then they'll give all the praise or, or they'll say you can't put all the blame on one person. But then when they give praise to someone else, let me see if I can illustrate what I mean. So if you are in the camp of Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time and you're hard against it being LeBron James, a lot of times what people will do is say, oh, LeBron needed help. He couldn't win a championship without <laughs> D Wade and this and this or all these things going right for him. Um, but then when they talk about Michael Jordan, they won't say. He couldn't win without Scottie Pippen. They won't, you know, they won't, they'll, they'll give all the praise to the person that they like, but they'll, anyways, what I'm trying to say is just as it's not only one person's fault in this case, it also wasn't just one person's brilliance in the original, right? Like exactly. Yeah. There were a lot of people who contributed to that. And while I maintain that Sakaguchi was a tough boss, 
I mean, they've said that in interviews. He he was really perfectionistic and he really kept people on task and he 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 wanted he wanted what he wanted. And he wasn't going to let you deviate from that too much. But he so, made yes. good games. So. Right. And and his his formula, I think, is part of what the spirit of Final Fantasy was. And since he's been gone, it's changed hands and we're seeing different formulas and different ideas and that's why it feels different today. But what I'm but I also want to just make this point and say that while I give Sakaguchi a lot of the credit for the greatness of old school Final Fantasy that I fell in love with, Kitase, uh, I mean, it, the, the, the theme of Final Fantasy VII was largely Sakaguchi's idea. But this was Kitase's directing baby, so to speak. He was sort of a co-director on Six, but Seven was like he wanted to be a film director. And so this was like his chance to like really display his style. And so he had a large, large degree, obviously as the director of the original, to do with its success. And even Nomura and all these other guys who worked on certain scenarios and scenes, you know, the charm that the, the fingerprint, their fingerprints are also on that. Right. So you can't pin all the blame on one guy. You can't pin all the success on one guy. Mm. Um, so well, it's like if, if they had had their way, if Kitase had had his way back in the day, half the cast would have been dead. Yeah. But <laughs> Namora was like, well, why don't we just kill Aerith? Yeah. And they're like, your entire party or just this one flower girl? Eh, let's just go with the flower girl. You yeah. know, like Namora. I don't want to say that Nomura is a horrible director or a horrible video game maker because he's not, he does have really good ideas and he does do great work. And when he was a character designer, I mean, nine tenths of the characters that we know and love today are Nomura projects. Yeah. But at the same time, when he's kind of left to his own devices, I feel like he likes to be flashy. He likes to be, you know, as a director, he likes to be really up in your face with stuff. And I just don't think that fits. If he had like people to nerf him a little bit, sure. <laughs> oh, so yeah. to speak, it's I the feel same like... thing. It's the same thing with George Lucas, right? Like if, if originally when he's unproven, you have a studio overseeing this being like, no, 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 no all the time. But now that he's the creator of star Wars and one of the most successful filmmakers of all time, and he's surrounded by yes, men, for prequel movies, it's a little harder to stand up to George Lucas and say, no, that's a bad idea, man. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and Nomura, in a sense, might be reaching that kind of status in Square Enix. I'm not saying it's the same. It's not equivalent. He's not George Lucas. But, like, it might be a little harder at this point in his career to be like, Nomura, listen, that's a freaking really bad idea. Please don't do that. And especially when he's your boss. I mean, you're going to tell your boss that? That's really hard to do. <laughs> right. And especially as long as he's been at that company, too, and how yeah. respected he is inside and out of it as well. Yeah. So, okay. Well, guys, <laughs> thank you for sticking with me through that extremely long three-and-a-half-hour podcast. I really <laughs> appreciate you coming on. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say? One thing that I have been worried about uh, throughout, I, I, I know that um, I'm used to this now. I've been taking lots of heat for the last several months on this podcast because I'm too negative and I missed the point and I'm too old. I'm an old man gamer now. And I just talk about how back in my day it was better. I'm Boomer. getting, I'm getting used. <laughs> I'm getting used to that. <laughs> so I know I'm going to get it. But if you guys felt in any way, like maybe uh, you didn't express enough 
the things that you liked about it, if you'd like a chance to say that before going or whatever, anything else that you feel you didn't have a chance to say, feel free to do so now. I do want to say that, like, you know, when you were talking about, you know, people that like the ending, you respect them and stuff. I do want to say that we we do respect you guys. You know, it's not that we hate that you guys like the ending. We just didn't. And it's just our opinion. And we respect the people in our community and the Final Fantasy community that did like the ending, you know, just one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I gave the game a nine out of 10 in my review. It is one of the most well-built action RPGs that I played this generation. I still highly recommend the game because I know that most people who touch the game and play it intimately, they will actually really enjoy it. Um, that being said, um, I am coming to you guys as a fan who is deeply concerned about the direction. I'm not hating on the creators. I'm not mad that it's not like the original. None of that stuff. It's not about change. It's more about the direction that they're going in. And when I voice these complaints, I want you to understand it's not because I'm necessarily mad at the creators in that sense or that I hate them or that I'm disrespecting your view on it. I'm just looking at something that, uh, a game that I've played and replayed throughout most of my life, and having a few concerns about the direction and the authenticity of the product going forward. And that's why we sort of have to take a little bit of a critical tone with this video. It's not because we don't like the original, obviously. And um, for, as far as the remake goes, um, I think, I'm not sure about Mike, but I know at least me and, me and Soldier can agree <laughs> that um, the, ga the, game, the game itself is a very well-built, enjoyable game. Um, and for the most part, barring some of the bonker story twists, the story is still pretty enjoyable, uh, especially that of which was uh, preserved from the original. So it's not a bad game, not at all, but they do need to be a lot more mindful of the direction of the story stuff going forward. Yeah. Totally agreed. For me, it's, it's not about hate. It's about disagreement, right? Mm. Like I just disagree with the choices. I right. disagree with Toriyama's baseline philosophy on what makes a good game. Not because right. it's bad, but because I just don't like it. I like Sakaguchi's formula, not Toriyama's formula. So, that doesn't mean, and I've said this and I'll say it again, this is an extremely polished game, right? They, they, it's not like Final Fantasy XV where it felt like they just didn't quite get to what they were hoping to do, mm. where it like felt incomplete in a lot of ways. And it's like they just did, they couldn't quite reach, like they clearly did what they wanted here. They yeah. built the battle system the way they wanted. It functions the way they want it to. I disagree with some aspects of it, but that doesn't mean it's bad. Because they yeah. did exactly what they set out to do. Uh, yeah. They told the story they wanted to tell. There's nothing in this game performance-wise or that anything feels like it's missing or incomplete or that, like, you know what I mean? Mm. They put a lot of passion and heart and they built the thing they wanted to make. They did what they set out to do and intended to do. And in that sense, I feel like it is a far improved product from Final Fantasy XV. Yeah, I just definitely. don't I just don't agree with many 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 choices that were made on the gameplay design side and on the storytelling side. So that's okay. 
Like, <laughs> if you love it, congratulations. You get more parts of it coming up. I probably won't play them. And it, again, it's just a matter of disagreement, not because it's terrible. So, all right, guys. Thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. I know that three and a half hours is a big commitment, but <laughs> you guys are great. It was a really good opportunity to meet you too. I've been wanting to talk to you guys for a while. So, I got a lot off my chest. So, that's really <laughs> same, same it feels air. good. This it feels actually, good, doesn't it? Yeah, it feels it, it feels very therapeutic, actually. Okay. Anyways, thanks, guys. Appreciate you coming on, and we'll talk again soon. Please have a good one.